Doctor Strange uh, is is a bit uh, is a bit Aristotle until the Ancient One punches him and he goes Plato. <laughs> he has no choice but to go Plato. Hello, fellow geeks. This is Jay Shear, host of the Story Geeks podcast and co-founder of the Reclamation Society. As a writer, I'm very interested in discovering how our favorite stories influence both us personally and our culture. To that end, the Reclamation Society and the Story Geeks podcast is all about exploring our favorite sci-fi, fantasy, and comic book stories. On today's episode, Sam Wellbaum and I are reviewing and discussing Scott Derrickson's film, Doctor Strange. We'll be discussing the story, the characters, and the major and minor themes weaved throughout the film. If you haven't seen Doctor Strange, you can listen to our spoiler-free review at the beginning of this show, and then we'll give you a spoiler warning before we dive in deeper. As an upfront warning, Sam and I talk for a long time about some deep philosophical and spiritual viewpoints that we each hold. If at any time you think you're crazy, which we probably are, you should let us know by shooting me an email. Here at the Story Geeks Podcast, we love to hear other takes in addition to our own. Discussion is what we're all about. If you're new to the podcast, thank you for joining us, and don't forget to subscribe. If you're a frequent listener, it's good to have you back. To learn more about the Story Geeks podcast and the Reclamation Society, be sure to visit www.reclamationsociety.org where you can check out our very own Star Wars fan film. Also, congratulations to Seth for winning Daredevil Yellow. He was our March free comics giveaway winner. That's right, we give away free comics on this podcast. Stay tuned for more details later in the podcast. All right, let's welcome Sam to the show and dive in to Doctor Strange. Sam, how are you doing tonight? You know, I'm doing pretty well, Jay. How are you doing? Ah, I'm doing good. I can't complain. Um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, well, it hasn't been too long since I've been on, so uh, not much has changed if you listen frequently. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, uh, let's see, uh, Sam, I'm an associate pastor uh, at the church that I I attend and uh, affiliate or adjunct faculty at two different universities that I teach at. And I'm working currently on my dissertation uh, in the realm of uh, philosophy, religion, and theology to get my PhD. Um, the thing that I'm writing on is uh, the philosophy of boredom. So uh, that's fascinating. It's one of the things that makes it to where I'm interested in media as much as I am because uh, I'm currently working with a guy named Blaise Pascal. And by working with, I mean like I'm reading, not like I'm going back in time and working with Blaise Pascal. <laughs> um, but I'm spending a lot of time reading. And his huge thing was that people in uh, his period of time in Paris were just completely focused on nothing but distraction uh, as a means of keeping themselves away from kind of the meaning and purpose of life. And I think if Pascal were to come forward, he'd be like, oh, totally. It's worse now than it was then. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm super interested in these things, kind of looking at the idea of why are, we, uh, why are we so afraid of boredom? How does boredom manifest in our lives? Why is boredom something that seems to loom so large? Uh, I mean, last time you and I talked, there, was, uh, there were three of us, so I didn't uh, go into huge uh, detail on it. And, Maybe it'll make more sense if there's a TV show on boredom that we talk about. But uh, <laughs> my 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 general reasoning for it was one day I was a college student uh, out at Cal Baptist in Riverside, uh, and like sophomore year, I was like, "Gosh, I'm bored. There's nothing to do." And I stopped and said, "Well, that's a that's a lie. I'm in Riverside. Like, depending on the time of day, I'm 20 to 143 minutes away from Disneyland." 
uh, or the beach <laughs> or mountains. I'm like, I got tons of options. Why am I bored? And so uh, it's been a bit of a, the better part of the last you know decade and a half of contemplating boredom that I'm kind of working with right now. Well, it sounds fascinating because I've actually heard a couple of studies that talked about how because we do not allow ourselves to be bored, we're actually losing cognitive function from it. Yeah. So there you go. Um, I did see this. This will make you laugh because this is this is probably um, something you'd be interested in. But one of the latest podcasts that uh, Rob Bell came out with was about boredom. <laughs> oh, gosh. So Rob you Bell. Will, you, yeah. You will. That's a. That's a world collision right there. You know, uh, a few years ago, Rob Bell had a TV show uh, that he that was on the Oprah Network. Um, and I had a friend who got tickets. So I was actually at the, the filming of the first two episodes of the Rob Bell show. Um, and in episode two, I did ask a question that was cut from the show. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, so I did interact with Rob, but uh, no one knows. <laughs> how did he answer the question not great ah <laughs> uh not yeah i mean i wasn't satisfied but uh well he's a question he's an answer a question with a question guy right yeah and it wasn't a great answer or a great question oh uh, well <laughs> well we'll stop being an advertisement for his podcast and we'll totally. dive into yeah. ours <laughs> let's, forget, let's forget that crap let's move yeah. on to something better <laughs> right exactly which, by the way, we're going to be talking about um, Doctor Strange, which I really liked. So let's get into the the, the review portion of the show. Um, obviously, spoiler free. So, um, what was your quality rating on a scale of one to ten? Okay, so quality rating. As I'm thinking through it, I mean, the, here here's my problem. I'm uh, I'm such a Marvel fanboy. It's not even funny. Like I grew up with these Marvel characters, Doctor Strange. Uh, as I was growing up, I had this weird relationship with Doctor Strange because um, I was a huge fan of the character, but I also, at a young age, as a very conservative evangelical Christian growing up, um, like we bought Legend of Zelda for the Nintendo, and I got home and saw there were skeletons in it, and I made my mom return it. <laughs> right? Like like I was that guy. You got uh, the gold star in, in uh, Sunday school that week. Oh, oh my gosh. I kicked. I was... <laughs> I had a 4.0 in Sunday school. Uh, and so, uh, so Doctor Strange, like I thought he was the coolest character. I absolutely loved him, but I wouldn't buy any of his comics because there were pentagrams. Uh, uh, and I thought, I was like, I'm like, oh, no, no, I can't do this, but I really liked any time he showed up. So the quality rating on the movie, I'm trying to be as objective as possible, where what I want to say is on a scale of 1 to 10, 15, because <laughs> Doctor Strange is amazing. That's um, awesome. But setting that aside, I watched it twice. You know, I saw it twice in the theaters. Um, the first time I saw the movie, actually, I was much harsher on it than I was the second time. Okay. Um, I think, uh, again, I'm not going to necessarily say I'm giving a 10 on the quality rating. Like the first Avengers movie, I'm giving that a 10. Mm. Uh, on quality rating here, I think I feel comfortable giving Doctor Strange maybe an 8. Um, you know, I, I feel bad giving it that low. I feel like I want to, but I think objectively, if it was another superhero, um, I probably would be at about the eight thing because to some level, um, and we'll get to this with like story and things like that, you know, to some area uh, level, there were just some things I think that could have made the story perhaps a bit richer. Um, the music was great. Like, here's the thing, the music, the special effects, all of those things overall, you know what, actually maybe quality, I should give it a nine story. I'll give it an eight. 
Uh, but so yeah, nine. I, I think I'm probably it's it. I thought it was a good quality movie. I think it could have been better, but I, I thought it was a good quality but, movie. What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm uh, I'm, I'm stoked that you're a Marvel fanboy. I'll need, I'll need to combine you and Bobby Nash on a podcast because you guys are the two biggest Marvel fanboys that I know. So we'll have to have like a big Marvel geek out. That'd be fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, let's, let's let's do that with Iron Fist because from what I'm hearing. Uh, you have to be a Marvel fanboy to admit that it's amazing. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing too, actually. Um, I'm not a Marvel fanboy. I'm actually, if I'm going to consider myself a fanboy of anything, it's going to be uh, Star Wars. Okay. Um, but I'm a little bit bigger of a DC fan than I am a Marvel fan. Um, well, sure. However, I, always, I always thought you were wrong, so that's fine. <laughs> right, exactly. How could I be right? Um, but in this regard... Um, I thought this was a nine out of ten. This movie nice. specifically, yeah. So, um, just a couple of quick bullet points on that. I thought that they brought in some amazing actors, and they continue to do so. Um, I'm always a big, I'm always a pretty big fan of um, Cumberbatch. I mean, he's yeah. really interesting. He's a fantastic actor, and he has discovered how to just milk as much money out of the geek population as possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Star Trek, uh, Hobbit. Marvel now, like just make the guy a Jedi. Just take everyone's yeah. money. Sherlock too. Oh yeah, so, Sherlock, I mean, of course. Yeah, Sherlock's amazing. Um, I also really liked, uh, and I'm gonna totally butcher this name because I have no idea how to pronounce it, but uh, Chiwetel. Yes. Uh, that's probably wrong, but um, he's amazing. Um, and then Tilda Swinton is always great. Yes. I don't think one th- one complaint I have about Cumberbatch. Um, I'm I'm not sure we needed a British actor to put yeah. on an American accent, which was a bit inconsistent and I think unnecessary. It's true. They should have just embraced that he was a British guy. Exactly. Why not? I mean, I if know. if the ancient one went from being an Asian man to a Caucasian woman, <laughs> we right. could make Doctor Strange a little British. Exactly. Um. I did find the story really compelling. It's it's very focused. The character de- development of Doctor Strange is really strong. Yeah. Um, have you seen Logan? I haven't actually. Okay. So, I'm the I'm the only person on the planet that's not excited about the movie. Well, no, I'm actually someone who's seen it and was I'm not excited about it. Oh, okay, so, cool. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like the only person on the planet by myself in a corner. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did an online. Re- I did a um, on our YouTube channel. I did a review of Logan, and um, I think this is a perfect film to contrast with Logan and my problems with Logan. Okay. Um, so I actually prefer the tone and visuals of Logan, and I actually prefer Wolverine as a hero. Um, uh, sort of an anti-hero, and if we're talking about Wolverine, sure. But the story and the character arc, I believe in this movie are far stronger than logan's story so you'll have to see logan and let me know what you think about that because yeah well i mean i I, here's the thing i haven't seen logan however uh one of my good friends well i mean your friend too derek brover uh he uh he saw logan and let me know that uh you know i i have severe problems with the dark knight uh like i think it's probably the most overrated superhero movie of all time um like i i really i just i don't think i mean i think it's gritty for gritty's sake like, I don't necessarily think it's fantastic. Um, but part of it is the fact that um, in that movie, you know, Bruce Wayne doesn't become better. Right? right. Like, there's there's no redemption. You know, and so one thing here that I do think you're, you're completely right about the quality is that Doctor Strange, 
and we'll talk about this when we talk about story, in a very similar way to Iron Man, it seems, um, gets redeemed quite well. Exactly. Exactly. You're 100% right with that. And that's my problem with... Actually, what's interesting um, about Logan, and when you, when you watch it, you might, you might find this true. I feel like it could have taken um, a type B story and showed like what the consequences of not doing the right thing are. Yeah. Or they could have taken the redemptive arc, but they sort of did this wishy-washy middle ground deal. And I just, I'd prefer one or the other. <laughs> like, just give me one or the other. Um, last note on quality. I know you mentioned this already, but I know that there was some controversy about Tilda Swinton, who I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, taking on the role of the ancient one. And obviously she's a white female. Um, she's actually referenced at least on the Wikipedia page as being Celtic, um, which I thought was interesting. But like you said, the original ancient one is Asian male. And I, and, and having seen the character design, um, which I looked up just to see, um, I don't, my, my depth of comic knowledge about Dr. Strange does not go back as far. So you're going to sure. have a, the advantage on me there. But, um, I, after seeing the character designs, I did feel that that was probably a poor choice overall. <laughs> um, not that Tilda did a bad job. It's just that why not make it an Asian female, right? Like why? Yeah. Well, no, and that's that's the interesting thing. It's like so, and when when looking at some of the reviews or some of the uh, reports about it, like I think we just need to go ahead and call Marvel on the carpet about it. Like the decision was made because having uh, you know uh, a Nepalese uh, male and that type of thing would hurt them in the Chinese market. So nice. uh, they decided not to go. Uh, but I think they understood that having a Chinese character there playing someone from Nepal would be a horrible political statement. <laughs> so now, granted, I mean, obviously, could you imagine what would have happened had they gone with a white man? Like that would have been oh, yeah. like a huge. So I mean, so they went with one. You know, the the whitewashing argument, uh, you know, got undersold something. But I think it was a huge undersell. Like. Um, particularly, like I just mentioned the Iron Fist thing, and we can talk about that, you know, maybe at another point in time, but people are concerned or angry, why did you not make this character uh, an Asian character? Like, this would have been a really unique opportunity for Marvel to make a very powerful, very influential character, uh, uh, you know, Asian, like, and, and hit that demographic and be true to the source material, uh, and, they, and they pulled back. I think that was an error. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I agree with you. Tilda did great because when you need someone to play an ethereal being of some sort, be it the white witch or the ancient one, you go to Conan O'Brien, who is Tilda Swinton. <laughs> this is very true. Um, you may, she may be typecast, but she's amazing in that role. Yeah, she plays her type. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we were both 9 out of 10. That's, pr that's very yeah, high I for quality, so that's good. Um, how about story depth? Okay, story depth. Here's the thing. So this is the one that I think I'm going to have to give it an eight on. Um, and please hear me when I say, like, that doesn't mean that I, like, story depth enjoyment, like story enjoyment, again, 15, maybe a 14, you know, out of 10. Um, story depth, though, yeah, I think the people who levied the critique that it was basically Iron Man Part 2 or Iron Man Redux, um, I think there's something to be said for that. Hmm. Uh but I don't necessarily think that Cumberpatch played as as Starky a Tony Stark, um, which I think was a good thing. I think it probably you know moved away from that a little bit. Uh, but I could see the familiarity, uh, perhaps kind of frustrating some people. Uh, one thing in my conversations with people, uh, they've they've said is that the movie felt fast, and I think there's something to that. Like it was a very quick movie, and I think that they could have fleshed some things out a little more. Uh, 
in particular, the way the story was told, like, I was very excited that they didn't overbear the love story uh, aspect of it. Like, they didn't force a, a force a romance type story in there. They played it very fast and loose uh, with, uh, with McAdams. Um, but the way they did it, without that being fleshed out, it made the scene where she's operating on him not necessarily land quite as well for me. Like, I feel like her character was not fleshed out enough, so that relationship, it was presented in such a way that I knew it was there, and so it should be a part of his character, but I didn't feel it displayed enough to make that that turnaround matter. They did a great job making him an arrogant jerk, without a doubt. Uh, (laughs) They did a great job doing that and then seeing that turn around. But I really think that that... I think the reason it felt fast was because that part, which usually in a movie that's an action movie, I care the least about. Um, I do think in that part that they could have fleshed out his ass, a few aspects of his personality there a little more. Sure. Now, is that him being a jerk? Um, is that comics accurate? Uh, well, here's the thing. The whole time before him, like the part that we saw there, that transformation time, man, that is maybe a total of... 50 pages worth of comic stuff over the Mm. past, you know, 50 years. Right. So they really, there wasn't tons. And when it was written was, you know, so long ago that their storytelling was a different way. But yeah, I mean, he was, from what we know, he was in fact a rather uh, arrogant neurosurgeon. I do think they played it up a little bit to go ahead because of how successful Iron Man was. Um, Right. I think they, I think they starked him up a little more. Uh, But there is a bit of arrogance there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I, I agree with you on most of the points. I actually went with a nine point five out of ten for okay. story depth, and and the re- the reason being is this: every time I watch a superhero film, um, and and you and I are actually on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to like you talked about the Avengers, you loving the Avengers, and then not liking the Dark Knight. I'm yeah. the exact opposite of that. Okay. I love the Dark Knight, and I think the Avengers is pretty bubblegummy. Um, <laughs> but and, I, I love bubblegum. R- well, yeah, and, and and actually, as a as a bigger Marvel fan, that tends to be more true in the re- more recent comics. Yeah. Um, now that's not to say that there's there's bad stories or anything like that. Not at all. But you're either going to prefer one or the other. You're going to prefer like the darker, grittier kind of more. Right. I'll I'll call it like superhero realism or you're going to gravitate towards the more fantastical which i believe is a little bit more what marvel's trying to do um but in this film what i love about it is that there's 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 what i call the trifecta of story depth um and that is that it speaks to spirituality in some way shape or form it speaks to human nature and it speaks to relationships um and you you actually pointed this out the weakest one of those three is relationships um, but I think it, this movie contains something about all three of those things. And that for me says, and actually the, the first two, it doesn't gloss over. It digs pretty deep into human nature and spirituality. Oh, incredibly deep. Yeah. So I, I, I love that in the story. So that's for me, that's why I give it a nine, uh, nine and a half. So I was very impressed by the story depth. Good. Yeah. Which, by the way, um, the director of this film, Scott Derrickson, did you did you attend Biola at any time? Yeah, um, I got my first master's there. Your first? Your, I got my first master's there. Yeah, I know. Here's impressive. the thing. Every, every time I say it, my wife says, I just sound like such a pretentious jerk. 
<laughs> but like it's true. I did get my first master's there. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it's true, what are you gonna do about it? <laughs> right? Um, I am a pretentious jerk. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, did now I if I'm not mistaken, didn't Scott Derrickson also attend Biola? Yeah, yeah. He's uh yeah. he's a Biola grad. Uh I mean he's a guy who directed the exorcism of Emily Rose ah, uh, yes. in the past. And so he yeah, he's a Biola grad. Um and so I mean, gosh, it, it it's plays the point that, you know, you're talking about what it plays up. You know, when I watched uh, Doctor Strange, the first time I left, I um, one of the guys who watched it with me is a uh, is a missionary. Hmm. Uh, well, a missionary, he, he works with Camp Crusade for Christ uh, down at Camp Pendleton. Um, and I looked at him and said, gosh, like, just show just show your troops this movie. It'll do a lot of work for you. Uh, you know, and, and he, he, he was confused. I was like, look, there's so much here covered. Like, this is just asking people to think about deep existential spiritual questions about what life is and why we're here and what's happening, how the spirit realm works. Like, uh, and the guys from Biola, it doesn't make, I mean, it makes sense one that he downplayed any of the overt sexuality that we would might possibly see in the love story. Like he handled that very tastefully at no point in time did, um, uh, McAdams, uh, she was basically in a scrubs the whole, every time we saw her. Oh, that's true, yeah. Right, like she was dressed very modestly, and I think it helped the story that way. There was no need to objectify her at all. Uh, and then the story as it was told was um, of a complete deep spiritual depth. Like, I think uh, I think that he he reached his goal in what he was trying to do. Absolutely, yeah. Well, interesting thing, too. Um, you started out by talking about how you came from a fundamentalist background. Yeah. Um, and for those listening who don't know the term fundamentalist, that just means... Um, very strict uh, conservative interpretation of biblical truth. Yeah. Um, and, and, and very, very fairly uh, dogged um, pursuit of that truth. Um, if, if you're going to complain about fundamentalists, the thing that's generally complained about is they're maybe overly focused on morality, if you will. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. I think I think that's fair, and and by that, not just necessarily morality, but anything that might look not moral, like not even immorality, but things that are like immoral adjacent, right? Like, right. like if you have to go through this street to get to immorality, then that street also is bad. Like, yeah, like, like you, like like if you're if you're a smoker, you may be going to hell. Yeah, more than despite the fact like, that it's never addressed in scripture that i'm aware of. yeah like from, from where i am here in southern california if i wanted to go to las vegas i would have to cross a street called zizix which is the coolest street in the history of the world so <laughs> i'd have to do that well in in fundamentalism or in strict you know overly conservative uh, evangelicalism if we want to say that vegas is bad you probably need to throw zizix out as well because you're getting a little close to vegas <laughs> too too close to vegas Oh, uh, that's probably a good, that's another good title for a podcast right there. Too Close to Vegas. Um, yeah, Too Close so to Vegas. We'll get there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the reason I bring that up is because he I, he was interviewed on the Empire podcast um, a few months back. And I just listened to it today, knowing that we were going to talk about um, this film. And he talked about the character of Mordo um, in this film being a fundamentalist essentially. Oh, totally. Um, and so it was, it was interesting that he brought that up. He, he was, he said he came up in that sort of environment as well. And by the way, just for the sake of, um, 
we are we all came up in that environment because I actually came up in what I would call so fundamentalist that they were even cultish in some ways. So wow, um, we all share a little bit of background in that fundamentalism, which will be interesting to explore a little bit in this. But um, so, what is your likelihood to refer this film to other folks? Yeah, I mean that's a ten out of ten. I mean, mm. it's a Marvel movie. Like a mar for something in Marvel to not get a ten out of ten on a likelihood to refer from me, like it would have to be exceptionally bad. Like I would give Iron <laughs> Man two uh, a ten out of ten. Like on likelihood to refer. <laughs> apparently, Thor two, uh, Thor Dark World. Apparently, that wasn't a good movie. I didn't notice. Uh, like I thought it was great. Uh, so I give it a ten out of ten. Uh, like to refer. Um, but again, I'm, I'm biased, but I do think that if it was, uh, another thing, uh, another character or whatever, like if this wasn't Dr. Strange, if this was Dr. Fate from the DC universe, <laughs> uh, I probably would still give it a 10 out of 10. Like it was a fun superhero movie that asked good questions. Like, yeah, what more could yeah. you want? Absolutely. Now, really quick. Um, what did you think of guardians of the galaxy? Dude, Guardians of the Galaxy was, I mean, I going in, I knew the characters, which made, put me in a class of my own, because almost right. no one did. Um, and I tried to explain to people, I was like, guys, you don't understand, right now Marvel has us so much in the palm of their hand that they're saying <laughs> DC isn't able to succeed with Superman, their most well-known property. <laughs> right. And we're going to throw a talking raccoon and a freaking tree at you, <laughs> and you're going to love it. <laughs> right. um, and we did. It was amazing. They wanted to channel a 1980s sci-fi type th vibe, and they did. Like, uh, they embodied it perfectly. I thought it was fantastic. I think um, of that group, of the Marvel Phase 2, I think Guardians was probably my favorite. Um, I know Col uh, um, the, uh, Winter Soldier uh, takes a lot of people's favorite in phase two, but I think I, I'm right. giving it to guardians. Like I absolutely love what they did and guardians too can't get here quick enough. So that is where we are right on the same page. Cause guardians is my favorite Marvel movie that they've done yet. Oh so man. It was I think, amazing. I think it's outstanding. Yeah. Um, so that would get a 10 out of 10 for me in, in likelihood to refer this movie gets a nine out of 10. I recommend it. I think you should go see it. If you haven't seen it, um, pay attention as you watch it because there are lots of fascinating questions in it. Um, but yeah, I'd say go see it for sure. Nine out of 10. Um, totally. Great. What's up, guys? Do you want to win free comics from the Reclamation Society and the Story Geeks podcast? Who doesn't, right? If you review this podcast on iTunes and also like our Facebook page, you will be entered to win a free comic book every single month. We may even have other prizes in the future. Give us an iTunes review and like our Facebook page. The links are in the show notes and we'll enter your name in our giveaway. If you have a username on iTunes that we wouldn't recognize, just make sure you send us a Facebook message so that we can connect your real name with your username on iTunes. It is that simple. And I thank you in advance for reviewing our podcast. Good luck on winning free comics and other material in the future. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there on iTunes. All right, now back to the show. So here's the portion of the show where I give the spoiler alert, because if you haven't seen it, you've heard now our review, both of us say go and see it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast, because we are going to ask some of those deep questions that are just asked by this film. Um, and since I've given the spoiler alert, we're going to go ahead and dive into that. So 
As the movie begins, Stephen Strange is an arrogant bastard. There's no other way to describe him. He is just an arrogant bastard. He's also amazing at what he does. He is the best surgeon in the world, and the movie pretty much just tells you that. Um, so question I have for you, Sam. Um, what's the relationship between arrogance and success, and what rules govern that relationship? Yeah, okay. No, I think when I, when I read that question, I was like, wow, that's, I think it's a great one. Um, and cause I think there's a few things at play. Um, we in some area, okay. So there's a few different trains of thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and try to get a lot of the pieces out on the table and it might become a very jumbled mess. Do it, um, do it, throw it out there. But, uh, okay. So on one hand, we, uh, honor people who are fantastic at what they do. Like we, if someone is great at what we do, what they do, we, we extol them. And we think that's something that's great that we ought to look at. At the same time, we do we like to make people who are not good at what they do feel like they're better at what they do than they actually are. <laughs> um, that's what the self-esteem movement, you know, really started kind of in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and so there's one part of us that if someone is good at what they do and they know they're good at what we do, we immediately assume that that is arrogant because how dare they, uh, be better at things than other people. Uh, on the other hand, there's an issue that we have to understand that we 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 mistake arrogance and confidence often. Um, see, I think that there is a relationship between arrogance and confidence that is hard to necessarily ca- kind of completely put into words or ignore. Um, if Doctor Strange, if his character had thought, I am the best neurosurgeon on the planet... And however, I'm not going to treat other people as though they're beneath me. I, I think people still might say that he was slightly arrogant. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I think that's still one of the things. Like, so sticking the the the, the um, uh, realm of geekdom, uh, you know, Doctor Who. Uh, there's been you know 13 doctors to choose from. Uh, <laughs> very excited that in August, Rift Tracks is going to be doing the Five Doctors episode. That's going to be a hilarious thing that they do. Um, my favorite doctor is number 10. It's very cliched to say, but I enjoy it. Um, and when people describe him, they say that they like it because he's he's kind of arrogant. They like his arrogance because it's the fun arrogance. But uh. the character of the doctor is inherently non-arrogant. The guy is completely self-sacrificial. So I think what we mean by arrogance oftentimes is confidence and being very self-assured. And so at that point in time, I think the relationship between arrogance and success should be seen this way. Um, If someone is successful and knows they're successful, we can go ahead and call that confidence. But when you cross the line and assume that because of your confidence or because of your superiority in some area, you are better than some other person... Uh, or of more value or worth, I think now we begin to get into the realm of arrogance. Um, hmm. You know, in the in the church culture, uh, or within the, the secular world culture, we have the same issue with the converse, with humility. You hmm. know, what is the idea of humility? It's one of those things, you know, so, you know, in, in the church area, uh, one of the most obnoxious things on the planet that I can't stand is whenever someone does something really, really well musically on stage. Or, you know, I preach sermons. If someone does a fantastic sermon that does a really good job with that, and afterwards someone comes up and compliments them and says, I really enjoyed your sermon, or, you know, that music was so beautiful. If their response is, oh, it's not me, it's him, not me, him. 
uh, like, and does this whole, like, deflecting type thing. Um, it's this false modesty thing that is misunderstanding humility. Mm. Like, it's this false modesty where it's, we, we, we say we're not able to understand or take, take any credit for ourselves. You know, humility is just having an accurate self-image, right? right? Like, hu- humility is just really, and so, like, a humble person who's very good at something you know, like a humble person who is very good at a skill that they have. Uh, I'm trying to think of someone right now. Let's go ahead and say I'm a country music guy. Let's say Garth Brooks, right? Like, yeah. it's not humble for Garth Brooks to say, oh, I'm okay at playing guitar. Right. Right. That, that's not humility. That's idiocy. <laughs> right? Like, right. that's that. That's not the... Uh, but if Garth Brooks says, no, I'm really good at playing guitar, and also because of that, tie my shoe for me. Okay, well, now he's arrogant, right? (laughs) And so, like, I think it's important to understand, like, arrogance is not knowing that you're good at something and not, even in some situations, deserving some type of respect for it. So, let's, I mean, even put more, uh, you know, things on the table. Uh, The reason our current president comes off as arrogant is not because he's confident, but it's because he's arrogant. (laughs) Right? Right? Like, Like, if our current president came off and said, hey, I'm good at business, and there's a lot of stuff broken, let me fix it. People might say he's arrogant, but he's really just being confident. But instead, sure. he says crazy things <laughs> and makes indications of uh, superiority and stuff that go into arrogance. And, and so, th- so that's a lot of things that I just put on the table, and I just ranted off for a lot. Uh, why don't you give your thoughts and play with what I threw out there, and we'll see if we get anywhere productive. No, I think you're, I think you're on the right track. I actually um, I went with a different metaphor i the, the first thing that came to mind for me was some of the the athletes that oh, i've yes. seen right like so i'm thinking of the michael jordans of the world the kobe bryants of the world even even to a certain extent and this is a good parallel to what you're talking about is like shaquille o'neal yeah um because he was likable because he there was no perception that he you know uh was down on other people because of him being so good. He was clearly arrogant because he would make jokes and he'd like not take things seriously and things like that. Um, but it didn't seem like, I mean, he didn't seem like it was mostly confidence because he didn't seem like he was better than the next guy, so to speak. Um, where oh, I shouldn't say that, it, like you said, he was, he knew he was better, but he didn't treat them as underlings, so to speak. Yeah. He was better um, at basketball, but not a more valuable human being. Exactly, exactly. And I think Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, on the other hand, they sort of, because they're more reclusive people, and it could be that they're just introverts, right? I could have a misconception of what they are actually like, but they seem like they are acting better than everyone else. If you see them on the court, they'll yell at the next guy, right? Like, yeah. what are you, why are you doing this wrong, even though they're the one that just shot the air ball? I mean, it's like, come on. Um, so a couple of the things that I was processing is that i feel like people who have been very successful particularly those people who have not experienced significant setbacks they make the assumption that their accomplishment is related to their superiority so they worked harder they were inherently had more talent they were smarter whatever and even though there's some truth to that people who have failed on their way to success I think understand that whether you call it luck or blessing or the benefit of having other good people around them have a lot to do with their success as well. And so it kind of takes their 
um, self-worth down a little bit to the point where it's more confidence, not arrogance. Um, the trick is I also think that, you know, excellence takes a lot of work. If you want to be the best, you have to, in many cases, dedicate your life to being the best. Um, so hard work does play a pretty big component to this deal. And I feel like there's people who dedicate their life to one thing and it makes it hard for them to be supportive of other people because they're so focused on what they want to accomplish. And that takes a good deal of self-focus to get there. So when you add all those things up, I think it's it can be challenging not to be arrogant when you truly are the best and you have pursued it with everything you have. Um, but I think you nailed it. Like, like there's a component where you can be the, the best and still be confident in your skills, but not look down on other people. And also not, you know, we all might have different merit in the world, but I think you and I would agree that everyone, no matter what their merit or their ability to do something is still of equal value. Yeah, no, totally. And that's where I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting. It's like anytime there's a, uh, um, a TV show about the end of the world, which there's a lot of them now recently, uh, because yeah. we're all just really fascinated about the world ending. Um, you know, and some of them actually do quite well. Last man on earth, I think is brilliant and I love what they're doing. Um, and then like you, me and the apocalypse that came out last year, it just went craptastic. Um, but anytime there's uh, something like that, it's always like, okay, well, we can only save 30 people. What 30 people do we save? Right. You know, and what they're always picking there is people that have the skills or the understanding or the intelligence necessary to propagate the human race going forward. Okay. Well enough like that, you know, that makes sense. But outside of that type of scenario, yeah, no, there, we need to understand that we, we cannot or we ought not view someone's superiority in one thing, meaning that they are humanly superior. It's just that they're better in a certain area. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are a better person, that they are of more value. Um, and, and that shift is what begins to make things uh, go from confidence to arrogance, I think. Now, of course, exactly. one, one thing we haven't talked about is because you and I right now are both talking the concept of Dr. Strange. So someone who is arrogant with merit. Yeah, uh, we are chock full of examples in society of people that are arrogant with no merit. <laughs> uh, for example, the meme star of "Cash Me Outside." How about that? Uh, and <laughs> right. other such situations in our world. Right, right. We do tend to reward some people who have almost the opposite of merit. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, and I think this is this is captures the character of Stephen Strange because it's not that he's the best surgeon in the world. It is truly that he puts other people down because he is the best surgeon in the world. And yeah. he, there's a certain expectation that other people will treat him in a certain way and that he is technically better than them. And even, I mean, the fact is there's in, in true uh, Greek storytelling fashion, that hubris is what leads to his downfall given the fact that he's asking someone to lay out for him 
uh, you know, different cases for him to take. Uh, and he refuses to take a few that are below him or one that might like damage his perfect record. Um, and it's kind of beautifully done. The fact is the guy's driving much faster than he's supposed to on a, uh, on a winding road, texting while driving, yeah. uh, which you ought, ought not do. And ex- exuberating hit, like exemplifying his arrogance, uh, by saying no to all of these things. And those like that whole, Air, you know, personification of thinking he's better than every other thing imaginable is what leads to the accident. Absolutely. And this is a really good segue into our next question because the movie has so much to say about identity. Um, it's really a central theme. And so what do you think that this movie tells us about identity? And um, what can you draw out of that? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's an insightful thing uh, to see that the at its core this movie is talking heavy about identity, um, because Strange starts off he's uh, he is defining himself by the success who he is is the world's greatest neurosurgeon that is in fact like that is what he defines himself as and when he loses that ability when he loses that use of his hands all of a sudden he has a crisis of identity who in the world am I. Right. Um, and I think it, it explains it out. And really, like, I think one thing we have to understand is that when we watch the story, that that what he what we see in in depicted on that screen is something that is faced so much more common than we're used to. Like one thing, there's there's a story that I had heard um, that I use in all of my teaching at this point in time. Uh, and I finally decided to Google it to try and track it down, and I found out that the story that I was looking for is one of like an infinite number of ones. But um, you know, when athletes come back from the Olympics, the majority mm. of them are faced with severe depression. Mm. You know, and I, I can't remember. I was trying to find the name of the exact athlete who this was, but he had trained his entire life. I think it was for the marathon or for some some race like this. He ran, he got the gold, and he said that being up on that podium, getting that medal was like the best moment of his life. Uh, and then the next morning he woke up and he said, what, it, what now what? Mm. Like he had defined himself as this person. But then when I started looking through it, I mean, Michael Phelps, the guy fell apart after London because he had de- de- devoted his entire life to, I'm a swimmer, I'm a swimmer, I'm a swimmer. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, if swimming's done, what do I do? What yeah. is my identity? Um, and so I think Dr. Strange does a great job depicting this picture that honestly you and I or anyone who's ever lived <laughs> you know, has to face, even if it's not at the athlete, you know, athletic Olympic level. But gosh, you know, the guy who in high school is the captain of the football team or conversely from that, because it's probably not the same person, the president of the student body, right? You walk across that stage and get your diploma. You don't matter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And if you're 25 and you say, I was the head of my high school football team, it's like, okay, cool. Get me my latte barista. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like it doesn't matter. Um, And so, you know, to some extent, I mean, we have to think, you know, I mean, President Obama probably has that at some point in time, or any guy when they leave office. You know, Hillary, the day after she lost, gosh, what was going through her mind? Right. And so I think what we see in Strange is this idea of we need to be able to define ourselves as more than these exteriors. Like, and it seems odd because there are certain things that I do that become very 
very much a part of my essence. Now, this is one thing that's interesting in some way, um, because like we will buy things that are different colors. Like right now, uh, my wife and I love blender bottles. Like it's a stupid thing to like, I'm sure, but these blender bottles, you know, the shaker <laughs> cup things you get, and yeah, like yeah, yeah. they have a color of the month club because every year, every month they release a new, it's like a special color, um, <laughs> and they they usually do a pretty good job. It's usually pretty cool. Um, and there's something about the color combination that it's like, wow, okay, for some reason that in some way speaks to me, you know, and looking around at the stuff that you could tell what's my wife's and what's mine. My stuff is green. Her stuff is mint, you know, and so there's something about even just like colors that we're drawn to. And we begin to build our identity around these preferences and around these things that we do. You know, one thing I've thought about is the fact that, you know, I, I teach. That's the thing that happens. Well, what happens if I, for some reason, lose like something occurs, I'm in an accident, and I bite my tongue off, and I lose my ability to talk. Well, I so much define myself as a person who is witty and snappy and able to make people laugh and be able to communicate very well. If I lose that ability, do I have an identity? Right. Is there anything left? And I think what Strange gives us is this idea that, you know, on... um, So from an atheistic existentialist side, looking at things from like the lens of Jean-Paul Sartre, um, there's always a way to redefine yourself. Sure. There's always a way to go ahead and say, okay, well now this will be my, my identity. Um, but from another perspective, I think it gives us this idea of the fact that our essence and identity goes deeper than even some of the main tent poles that we hang our hat on. You know, so to not get into things that are super controversial, but also to get into things that are super controversial. (laughs) Um, Like, if someone were to ask me how I identify myself or what I consider, I would not think to say heterosexual male. Like, not that that's not what I am, because that's totally what I am. But that, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a part of my identity. Um, But for people in the LGBT community, their LGBTness, whichever one that applies to them, seems to very often be central to their identity. Right. And so in the communication, it's a a very different thing. Where I think this movie in some question begins to ask, okay, is that, or is my ability to communicate, or is this job that I do, are these things actually my identity? If these things were to change, would I still be me? And I think what Strange is saying is, I would. And you could get to something that is perhaps, you know, this undercurrent that is actually more, uh, you in some way. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I think that that's perfect. In fact, I had a very similar conclusion because one of the things I had started to do was I started to say, um, cause he's really rocked obviously, right? When he can't use his hands anymore, his entire identity is, is no longer available to him. This is the thing that has made him superior to other people. So now all he can see himself as is inferior. Um, and I, tr- and I tried thinking through like, well, what are the things that um, in this mortal life, what are the things that we are guaranteed, right? Like, um, and, and I could not come up with anything that cannot be taken away from us. So uh, what I mean by that is whether you have beauty or prowess or strength or sight or you, you name it, anything to do with your physical body can be taken away. Um, on top of that, all of your relationships, which sometimes define us, can also be taken away. So whether you're a father, husband, wife, mother, daughter, son, whatever whatever you're classified as, all of that can be taken away as well because those people can die. 
um, and then you're no longer that anymore. Um, and it's may become a memory for you, but it's no longer your immediate identity. And so I think that what you're, what you're talking about and, and yes, can it be reinvented? Of course it could be reinvented. Like you were talking about. Um, but the, I came to the same conclusion you did, which was, and I think this is inherent in what strange learns, even though I don't know if it's fully set in for him because he does become a pretty kick-ass sorcerer. I mean, right. I mean, yeah. Uh, but I do think that, that if we're going to ground our identity in something, it has to be in something that is not, uh, that doesn't fade away that can't be taken from us. And that's nothing that I could find in the mortal realm. Um, and so then you get into these other dimensions that we'll get into and things like that. But um, I think that that's a pretty key tenet. So is it, now as you think about that, as you break down your own personal identity, how do you break that down? Yeah. Uh, so I, th I think that's, that's interesting. So one of the things, you know, and I think you're putting your finger on it a lot. Um, I go back to one of my, um, one of my favorite, uh, Okay, so almost every philosopher is one of my favorite philosophers. Um, <laughs> but so one of my favorite medieval philosophers between the period of 1 to 500, uh, I suppose I can say, <laughs> is this guy by the name of Boethius. Mm. All right. And if nothing else, I just love him because he has one of the best names in history. <laughs> right, like, right. I've already been told by my wife that, uh, like, Boethius is off the table as a future child's name. <laughs> um, but it might, like, a dog could get it, which makes sense because... Boethius is a Rottweiler in my mind, oh, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not a Chihuahua. Um, no. But uh, his most famous book is a book called The Constellation of Philosophy. And hmm. in it, he is in prison. He's in prison by one of the Ostrogoth kings uh, or warlords, I suppose we can say, um, for being a Christian. Uh, and in this book, he is writing... Uh, as though philosophy is consoling him for what he's dealing with. And basically what he, the conclusion he comes to, uh, Jay, very similar to what you said, is that um, fortune's nature is to be changeable. And so you're born naked and alone, and you'll die naked and alone probably. Mm. Um, and anything you gain or lose between that doesn't matter. And in fact, uh, everything temporal, every temporal blessing, every temporal boon has with it a very, uh, a, an equal negative. Like I currently, in my current life, do not have the anxiety of losing a million dollars. Like the only benefit to not being a millionaire is to not have the fear of losing a million dollars. <laughs> like I barely have the fear of losing a few thousand, you know, like that's where it's at. Uh, but as soon as you gain something, you do have this horrible fear of losing it. Uh, that's a new thing that we can get there. Uh, you know, I, I got married not too long ago and like two months after, uh, we, uh, we got married, uh, my wife got super sick and one of the doctors said that she looked toxic. Now the doctor was wrong and my wife's a nurse. So she knew that, uh, but she freaked out a little bit and I realized, you know, not two months after getting married, oh my gosh, I now have a new fear. Right. I've never had to worry about losing my wife. And now, now what happens? Um, and so to that, I think Boethius speaks well and he says, basically, if the soul is eternal, then nothing temporal can satisfy. If the soul is eternal, then nothing temporal can give any lasting sense of fulfillment. And so as I look at myself when it comes to identity, um, what I think is that I need to seat that identity in the fact that I believe that I'm made in the image of a triune God uh, who is a creator of all things. 
And so my seat for who I am and my seat for what I ought do and how I should act needs to be located completely and fully in him. Hmm. And so that becomes for me part of what this identity looks like uh, is that this identity isn't anything trans, this uh, isn't anything located here in the physical realm, but is something that goes beyond and subsumes the physical, but is also in the spiritual uh, that holds it, which is why I love so much about what's happening in the movie Doctor Strange. Because I think it's giving this position of what an identity looks like uh, and how one defines themselves. Absolutely, I, I I couldn't say it. I couldn't have said it better. One of the things that prompted um, me personally to start the Reclamation Society was this question of where are we placing our hope? Where am I placing my personal hope? Yeah. And uh, I love these geek stories, right? So I'm always investing my time and energy in these geek stories, but a lot of them don't provide hope outside of the physical realm. Or if they do, they create a new realm that doesn't maybe seem to apply to us. Although that'll be part of our discussion too later. Um, and so I, I, I ask, I would ask everyone out there, whether you come up with the answer that Sam gave or you come up with the answer that I would give, um, which, spoiler alert, is that I agree with Sam that um, my identity is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and the gospel being good news. But you might not believe that. You might believe something else. The question for you to ask, though, is really related to what is your identity? And are you placing your identity in something that is temporal I love that word. Or are you placing it in something that is eternal? Now, some of you are going to be out there and you're going to say, no, um, obviously I don't believe in an afterlife. And so therefore my identity will always be temporal. And you can come to that conclusion. In fact, Sam gave the example of the philosopher that, that thought that way. Um, but I would caution you to think about that long and hard because I think it's one of the quintessential questions that we as human beings are forced to answer. And, um, I just, I just really appreciate the conversation. So I would love to hear other opinions on it. You can always send us an email and I can actually read some of those opinions on the next podcast. So if you're out there and you have one, send it to me. Um, great discussion. So, uh, what rules Sam govern the Dr. Strange and maybe even the Marvel multiverse? At large. So we know that there's a multiverse. We know that there are multiple dimensions that are referenced here. What are some of the things that we can pull out of this film and what it tells us about these things, especially as it pertains to the Marvel and Doctor Strange universes? Um, okay, so what rules? Um, I mean, can you be more specific? Like, what rules in general? Like, what? Well, what so, um, yeah, so like, what exists? What, what can we say that this exists, right? Like, what does it mean to, to have a multiverse? What does it mean to have um, different dimensions? What dimensions are referenced here? Those types of things. Okay, yeah. So the idea of a multiverse. And so here's one thing I think is important. Um, like, the idea of a multiverse is not uncommon, perhaps I should say. Um you know, I mean, and truthfully, reading uh, reading X Men comics is what got me into philosophy. Uh, when they did parallel universe stories and things, I started uh, I, it captivated me. But right now, the idea of a multiverse is one of the uh, compelling narratives in uh, the scientific sphere of trying to understand the world. That there are, in fact, uh, infinite number of universes. I mean, there's uh, philosophers and things like that who are actually addressing what would a multiverse look like. Um, 
And so it, it is interesting, in, in particular to the Marvel multiverse, uh, what seems to be showing here with Doctor Strange is that uh, there are other dimensions that exist. And Doctor Strange is clearly not the only, um, and the Marvel Universe is not the only piece of uh, sci-fi or fiction or storytelling that does multiple universes. But uh, Marvel's doing it in a very unique way in that the other universes that exist seem to have identities all their own. Um, so there's the dark dimension, there's the microscopic dimension. I can't remember what that's what that one's called. Um, there's all these other subdimensions that seem to have kind of a, a realm. There's Asgard that seem to have an existence of their own. So that's different. So compare that to like, uh, the science, uh, the TV show a few years back fringe. Mm, yeah. Um, I loved the first two seasons of fringe. And then at the conclusion of season two, they did something that made me hate the rest of the seasons <laughs> in that they took all the characters that I liked and merged them with another universe so that uh, the character, I think Olivia is the name of the main character, yep. um, so that the Olivia that is in seasons three through five, I think it is, is not the same Olivia from seasons one and two, but she's acting as though she is the same Olivia. And it was completely out of place. Right now in the in the comic book world, DC is trying to fix having just done that for the last five years, uh, where they made a Superman that wasn't the same Superman that was there before, a different Superman, and they're trying to find a way to piece it all together. Right. Um, but so what, what Marvel's done here is given us a situation in which uh, each dimension has its own unique characteristic it's not just like oh this universe next door is the exact same only here thor's cape is chartreuse <laughs> you know like that's not what we see though in other multiverse systems that would be something that we do see so i do think the dimensional crossover is it's they're doing it in a very unique and different way almost like each dimension is its own country or territory uh which i think is helping their storytelling uh significantly absolutely and and i think we're we see so we we don't get a lot of information in this film about the multiverse at large. I don't right. think we do get some information about the astral dimension and the dark dimension. And, and are we given any others, or are those just the main two? That am I forgetting one? Uh, in this one, what we have is the dark dimension, and we talk about the astral place with like the uh, and the mirror dimension. Oh yeah, mirror. There you go. Like the mirror place. And that's why I said, like, and uh, there is, when Doctor Strange uh, is going through all the dimensions, he does cross through the micro dimension. I can't remember exactly what it's called, that we saw first in Ant-Man. Yes. So yes, he yes, goes yes. through that one. Uh, and so that's where, so we do get a taste of at least four known. And by the way, just at, before you continue on it, the dark dimension. Wow, the way that they took uh, Jack Kirby's drawings of the dark dimension from the 1960s uh, and placed them into CGI background graphics. It was superb. Like they did an excellent job with that. Yeah. And I, I don't even know what that looks like. I'm going to look it up because I, I was not reading Dr. Strange and not reading any dark dimension comics back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't alive back then, but you right. know what I mean. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. Um, now one, one thing that I, um, that confused me, and maybe you can shed you can help shed some light on my confusion. Sure. Um, there was there was reference made to the astral plane, the astral dimension, being where the soul exists separate from the body. Yeah. Yet, what I found interesting about that was that um, 
and we see this in the scene where um, Rachel McAdams' character is operating on Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange is fighting with one of um, Caecilius's uh, henchmen. Um, but they're fighting in the astral dimension. And yet there's an indication that if his physical body dies, and this actually happens to the ancient one as well, if the physical body were to die, the, it seems like the body that's in the astral plane, the soul, the, the spirit, so to speak, the energy, uh, would also die. I, I, am I not picking up on that correctly, or is that... No, you're okay, you've actually picked up on it, so it's interesting. Um, so Marvel, Marvel is not the only uh, storytelling mechanism where the astral plane exists. Um, anytime you have anything dealing with either the mystic, the soul, or the metaphysical, or the psychic, you're going to have the astral plane. But Marvel probably has one of the more developed astral plane type ideologies. Um, and where Doctor Strange does a ton of stuff in the astral plane, also one place that we see it a lot in the comic books is uh, with Professor Xavier uh, in the X-Men. And uh-huh. so the, the telepaths, they are all over the astral plane. Um, and so one of the characters there, and actually if, I mean, I don't want to get into t- t- tons of spoilers, but, uh, um, the TV show Legion that's on currently, uh-huh. uh, you know, one of the characters there is more than likely an allusion to this character in the Marvel comics called the shadow King. Um, and the shadow King in the comic book universe actually did have his physical body obliterated and he was trapped in the astral plane. Uh-huh. And so this general idea there seems to be that if you are a strong enough soul or a strong enough psychic or a strong enough something like that, you can exist independent from the body that Interesting. way. Interesting. Okay. However, and I think one thing that's going to be helpful coming from, so now that the comic book trivia has been put aside, everyone else can pay attention and listen. <laughs> uh, but I think what you're getting at is this. So the astral plane, they're saying that's where the soul exists apart from the body. First off, that tells us something very interesting about the story that they're telling in that they're coming from a platonic worldview. Okay, so now we're going to get into a little bit of a little bit of philosophy because I think it's sure, important to understand it. this. Yeah, um, yeah. The two dominant modes of thought, and actually, I'm going to throw tons of ideas out here that we're not going to talk about, but maybe we talk about again at a later point in time. Sounds but good to me. The two the two main voices in early Greek philosophy that we have are Plato and Aristotle. Actually, if you've ever seen the, the the painting, the School of Athens, they're at the center. Plato is pointing up. Aristotle's pointing down mm. because of where they think reality is. Plato believes that reality is this disembodied world that is apart from the physical world that is called the realm of the forms. And in that realm of the forms, what that means is that there is a um, a realm that's different from the physical, and that's what's really real. Hmm. However, in the with Aristotle, Aristotle thought that was crazy, and instead, this physical world was the world that was primarily real. Hmm. Um, and then after, I'm sorry, my computer is making so many noises right now. Uh, <laughs> I thought I had everything shut off and I didn't. Um, okay. So then as time progressed, the Western, Western, uh, civilization, we lost Aristotle. Like, first off, let's just talk about how insane that is. We just freaking lost the works of one of the greatest philosophers of all time. The only work we still had by him was the logic, and that was only brought to us because that guy Boethius that I talked about translated it. We lost Aristotle. We thought he was gone. And so Christianity in Western Europe developed under the guise of Augustine reading Plato into Scripture. Hmm. Now we switch over to the East, 
in the East, Islam is started, and the Islamic scholars, they're the guys who are keeping Aristotle alive. Hmm. But they don't have access to Plato. And so Islam develops with Aristotle having been the dominating force uh, in the philosophy that they've been studying. Well, when the Crusades happen, all of a sudden the West rediscovers Aristotle. And we have to figure out what do we do with it. This cues in a philosopher by the name of Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas brings Aristotle back to the t- uh, back to the fore, and we get an uh, Aristotelian Christianity that then becomes dominant in Catholicism, where Augustinianism Christianity, uh, which is a Platonic type of Christianity, becomes dominant in Evangelicalism. Okay, mm. all of that was a bunch of history that probably didn't matter to anyone. However, <laughs> however, all that's to lay context. For Aristotle, and therefore for Aquinas, this idea of the physical body and the soul kind of being ripped apart that way, very confusing. Hmm. Aristotle wouldn't know what that means. And Aquinas would say that we are what's called a hylomorphic dualism. We are the combination of our body and our soul. And the body and the soul are not meant to be apart. Augustine or Plato, the idea of the body and the soul being separate, totally simple. Hmm. So we get to this astral plane idea. This astral plane idea is why can the body not be separated from the soul? And you think, as you're hearing the story, that it seems fairly platonic. And yet, the fact that the Ancient One dies as soon as the body dies, it seems to be actually leaning more towards this Aristotelian, Thomistic way of understanding the world. And just, here's a brief, here's the reason I I throw all that information out. One, I literally just lectured on this this afternoon, so it's very fresh (laughs) in my head. Um, But two... Just as a side note, because understanding philosophy and the history of the world, the narrative of the world we live in, is super important. So, Platonic Augustinian uh, Christianity doesn't necessarily place a strong emphasis on this world. The disembodied is what's important. Aristotelian Thomistic Christianity, huge emphasis in this world. Do you think, one, that Islam and Christianity developing with Aristotle and Augustine, Aristotle and Plato being dominant, affects the way those two religions look. I think it very much does. Then, adding to that the idea of looking at how um, current Catholicism and evangelicalism work, it also affects it huge as well. Mm. Why is it that evangelicals go on a mission trip to build a well for the sake of trying to evangelize someone and Catholics go and build a well because a person needs water. Hmm. It's because of this normative Plato versus Aristotle mindset. So all of that background kind of the background to the question that you ask about the astral plane. I think what this is doing is it's telling a story that we think would make sense in a platonic mindset, but it appears to be a much more Aristotelian way of existing. I don't know if any of that's helpful by any means whatsoever, uh, but I think it makes some type of connection to what's happening with why can the disembodied spirit not connect to the host? Yeah, no, no I think that's that's fantastic. So the, the follow-up question I have, this is a perfect segue into it, is that when the movie begins... Strange has a worldview that is grounded in science, and he has a couple of lines where he actually says, healing through belief, I do not believe in fairy fairy tales. We are made of matter and nothing more. There is no such thing as spirit. And and I believe that's the point in the movie where the Ancient One literally punches him out of his uh, (laughs) physical body. Yes. (laughs) Which is is amazing. Um, 
so then he's introduced to the to the astral dimension in the multiverse. So the question uh, I would ask is, as it as as we talk about, um, you know, there's the rule that energy cannot be um, created or destroyed, um, and as we talk about there being an astral plane in in the in the story, and as we talk about there being a physical realm as well, uh, how how would those two viewpoints on the world as you express them, Plato and Aristotle, how would they feel about the death of the human body and how how the astral plane in this case, we're going to use the technology, the terminology from the movie sure. and, um, and this, the physical realm, how would those two things interact in the case of death or in the case of um, movement through multiverses or dimensions? Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. So like um, in the case of death, so for Aristotle, if your physical body dies, you're dead. Hmm. Like you're done, game over. We're we're finished. Um, for Plato, the idea of a disembodied person, it's fine. Actually, the way Plato would phrase it is that we are trapped in our bodies. So, like if you've ever been to a funeral and you heard the pastor say something about this person is free from his earthly prison, that's uh. not anywhere in Scripture. That's Plato. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> you know, like that's not that's not the Bible. That's Plato, but it's us inserting Plato into it. Um, so when it comes to this idea of an astral form trans, you know, going through this, it, you know, perhaps we could almost say that uh, in that in that scene, um, Doctor Strange uh, is is a bit uh, is a bit Aristotle until the Ancient One punches him and he goes Plato. <laughs> right, he has no choice but to go Plato. <laughs> he just goes full Plato at that point in time uh, because he transitions. And th- again, that's not to say I, I don't want to oversimplify Aristotle and say he didn't believe in a soul because that's definitely not the case. Um, but I do think this idea of like the spirit of the astral plane, I think this higher dimension, I think one thing that this movie does great is taking uh, someone who has what we can call scientism as his main worldview, this idea that science is the only means to truth, which, by the way, in and of itself is a philosophical statement, not a scientific one. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he's holding to this this view, and then he gets his worldview shattered. That's actually one thing that I th- I think is excellent about what this movie does is it gives us a depiction of someone whose worldview has to change. Hmm. Like I think one of the things that's great is that people will believe whatever we want to believe until reality no longer lets us believe it. So Strange very much says, "No, healing through belief—that's crazy." And then he gets hit, and all of a sudden, the fact that there's a soul and a spirit world gets open to him, and he has to come to terms with that. And there's a lot of things to deal with that. Uh, questions, you know, one of the things I go back to often is um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, a fantastic book, a great book. And uh, you know, trying to think through um, if demons were al- if demons are real, what is it that a demon wants? Because we often depict demons as wanting to cause pain and hurt and and suffering and things like that. Um, but truthfully, if a demon wants people to not believe in the spirit world, because if they don't believe in the spirit world, they won't believe in God. Imagine that a demon's best tactic is just to lay low and say nothing, mm. right? And so to that, like when it comes to this idea of the spirit world type thing. It's not until he's confronted with the spirit world that all of a sudden he has to admit what I presuppose no longer works. Hmm. And so I think that there's a, that that's an, an important thing that they introduce here, this astral idea. Um, and so the idea of the spirit in the astral realm, um, that the astral realm seems to be a place that you could send your spirit. Now, does, does that mean that the spirit lives in the body? Um, maybe. 
Uh, but how does it do that? Where in the body does it live? As I grow, does my spirit grow? Hmm. Um, and that's where I don't think we can go ahead and run those corollaries. There's actually a huge debate in the Puritan, uh, in Puritan Christian theology called the Traducian controversy, uh, in which they looked at, you know, like if I chop my, if I chop someone's arm off, does their soul get chopped? Oh, you know? interesting. You know, well, no, obviously not. So clearly my soul doesn't live in my shoulder, <laughs> you know, right, right, like, right, right, right. and so that corollaries. So it's an interesting thing. What, what do you think? You know, if I were to apply my personal belief to it, uh, I would say that I believe that there is um, obviously more than just the physical world. I don't believe that we understand the factors that govern things that are external to our universe. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Plato's allegory of the cave, so to speak, right? Like there's these these perfect things that exist and we know that they exist um, because we can think of them. Is that is that is that fair enough? Um, uh, no. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, there's no better way to say it than no. I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to think of is I'm trying to think. There was there was a philosopher, and I don't even know who this would have been, but that said like because I can think of a perfect circle, even though that I can't draw a perfect circle, and I probably can't find a perfect circle. The fact that I can think of one means that there are things that are greater than us oh okay 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 gotcha um yes so that so yes so plato that that does go low not to the allegory of the cave um but it does but that's part of a a branch of philosophy that we can call rationalism so that shows up Mm. in plato it shows up in augustine it shows up massively in a guy named anselm um Mm. that have this idea that because i can conceive of that which is perfect there must be that which is perfect and in fact i use that which is perfect to be my adjudicating principle about everything else Interesting. Okay. So I like that line of thinking because what it does to me is it says, uh, because what I'm also uh, oftentimes confronted with and the thing that makes me believe in uh, spirituality as a uh, core belief uh, as a part of my makeup, right? Is that the reality that I can look around, look around and say, why is it that Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, using the two examples I used earlier, cannot make free throws for the rest of their life if they started right now? They can't do it. It's impossible for them to be perfect. Why is that the case? And why would I assume that that's not perfect? Right? It's, it's just, it's, if I can envision someone consistently making free throws for the rest of their entire existence, and yet no one on earth could actually do that. And I just apply this to, you know, like the fact that I can't be, I, I would really like to be a perfectly moral person and I can guarantee you that I am not and I fail at that on a daily basis. So my, my thing always goes back to why is that the case? Because I know my brain knows what I'm supposed to do, but it's almost like I can't do it. So why does the fact that imperfection exists and is actually pervasive on the face of the earth, why is that a thing? Why is that um, a thing? Yeah. And, and, and that, that to me says, that's to me what starts to build a worldview. Because now I start to go, okay, well, if that's the case, then I can actually imagine that perfection does exist and that perfection would be God. I can actually imagine that um, we would need to be saved from our own perfection, particularly when there's a uh, break in relationship 
between myself and God and I need to, ha- and I want to have a relationship with God, but there's, there has to be a connection made. Um, that all speaks to me very deeply. So I don't know how that works out in, in the formal, uh, philosophical realm, but for me, that speaks very, uh, intentionally into human nature and our need for something more. No, and and I agree, and that's I, the thing is I, I don't think it necessarily has to work out huge into the formal philosophical world, but um, it does. Uh, I think the idea that there's something missing. I mean, gosh, let's okay. So looking around the world, um, the basis of pretty much every single religion is the idea that something's broken. Right. Like it, it, it's fascinating that we want to look at the fact that every religion has at its core um, that there's a brokenness or something that's not working. Um, how in the world is it fixed? And so there's plenty of different um, ideas given. Like I think that just sheer common uh, experience of something not being right. Um, I think it's universal, and I think that um, that explains that probably just the universality of religion. Let's go ahead and set aside the fact that you know, you know, I both come from Christian backgrounds. If I'm approaching this as a secular thinker. Um, it's hard to get around the pervasiveness of religion as a human experience and the universality of the idea that something's not right. Mm, and that, I think I think that needs to give us pause. I mean, even if we're looking at the stories that we like, okay, so, you know, we're talking about the fact that stories that we're drawn to. Um, one of the reasons that I like to make fun of Christian movies uh, so much, uh, aside from the fact that they're, they're poorly acted, um, <laughs> is like setting aside that very obvious thing. Um, Setting aside that, um, one of the reasons I do it is because there's not a good story. Like the story that I'm drawn to, because the Christian movie trying to negate conflict or trying to negate sin has negated struggle. It's negated the fact that there's something that needs to be overcome. And that's where the great stories of old, to kind of begin to sound like Samwise Gamgee, the stories (laughs) that we're drawn to are someone overcoming something, be it a fully secular story like Beowulf, where the guy thinks he lives on in the poems of his people. Well, he has to overcome Grendel, Grendel's mom, and the fire drake, right? Like, there's a thing that's trying to be overcome. And in fact, the stories that don't seem to, like the TV shows that don't seem to necessarily go anywhere are the ones where what they're trying to overcome doesn't necessarily land right you know in order for a show like again i'm super sad grim is going to end this week um but every year what grim has to do is establish something that needs to be overcome and then they need to overcome it and then the next year the same thing has to happen that's why marvel's agents of shield uh it's in season five i think it is and it's had four good seasons and one okay one because the first season, they had a hard time developing that thing that they were going to overcome until the last quarter of the show. So that idea about the fact that religion, uh, all these religions are seeing that there's something broken. Well, that brokenness is what we're trying to figure out how to overcome. And we're, we're attracted to those different narratives of how to do so. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, just to speak to my own personal belief system, the reason why I gravitate so much towards Christianity specifically is in that, as, as I said before, I don't believe human beings can overcome. So you might be able to overcome and you might like love the redemptive story of being able to, you know, uh, whatever it is, conquer the invading alien, or you might, so, you know, Will Smith in independence day, um, does this amazing thing and overcomes the aliens and things like that. 
Uh, and we do love the redemptive nature of someone making a self-sacrificial sacrifice. And even when they die, we do respect what they've done in that case. But even if they didn't die, they're, they're going to eventually. <laughs> so you can only be the hero of your story until you're dead. Right. And then what hope do you have beyond that, right? So I think that that's what like makes me gravitate towards Christianity because at the end of the day, the form of Christianity that I believe in, um, which is what usually turns me off to some fundamentalists, is that I don't believe that morality is the thing that gets us, you know, admittance into heaven. <laughs> um, right. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Because if I'm a guy that believes you can't keep making free throws, how in the world if God said, you know what, you got to make all the free throws you ever take, um, I'm taking one free throw, and if it goes in, I'm stopping. <laughs> yeah, but okay. that's We're, well, let's still... call it good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and I think that this movie uh, encapsulates that so well in so many different ways. Um, so, and the fact that we can have this level of a discussion having watched a comic book film is just phenomenal to me. No, for sure. Like it does. And one that, uh, and again, this is where partly my issue with the dark Knight or something happens. Like I didn't feel dirty or sad leaving the movie theater at this one, you know, it was right. fun or happy. And yet we're, it's still hitting at such a huge level. And there's a few massive things that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, yeah. That we have to get to that. Like Absolutely. there's, there's so much that it unearthed that we have to figure out about what is the relation between the physical and the spiritual? What actually makes me what I am? How do we define reality? No, there's tons going on. Right. Right. Oh, I know. And we probably won't even hit on all of them. Right. Um, the next question I will transition into is, um, <laughs> this is, this is actually, I just resonated with this so much. Um, there's this moment where strange is trying to learn magic and he's told that he needs to surrender and yet he's also told he needs to keep practicing in order to learn the magic and this concept comes up so many times in my own life and um and i love the fact that strange says i have to surrender to control it that doesn't make sense <laughs> so Sam, I'm going to ask you, how am I supposed to surrender? What am I supposed to surrender? Or am I supposed to work harder? How does that equation all work? And how do I know when to do what? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and, and here's the thing. Like, because you can imagine a different conversation you have with different different people. Uh, you know, sometimes saying, well, you just have to let, let it be. So I remember this conversation, you know, we're, we're, you know, in our thirties and, and both happily married. Uh, so we don't have to deal with the conversations that single people have about how to find someone. Oh, yeah. um, but I remember those conversations back from my, you know, from my early mid twenties or things like that. And people are like, you know, say, well, I'm just going to let things happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push matters. I'm just going to go ahead and sit there and just, just go with the stream and, and just turn myself over to the process and see what occurs. And I remember when some people said that, I was like, well, that's the most meaningless thing I've ever heard. <laughs> because if both parties are just seeing what happens, then nothing happens, right? Like, there's nothing happening if no one's initiating or trying to do something. Um, but the other time, there are other situations in life where it does make sense that you can try and work and work and work as hard as you like. But sometimes you just need to go ahead and say, let go and say, okay, let's just see what occurs. It's out of my hands. Um, now, when we're talking about the mystic arts, 
yeah, very often people say like your power comes not from your power, but from your lack of power. Mm. I, I don't know what that means. That means that, that I'm, I'm with Steven on this one. That means nothing, <laughs> right? Like that's always where, you know, Yoda's uh, entire conversation about, you know, judge me by my size, do you? And then, you know, moving the thing because it's about your strength of character, your strength of will in some way. Um, here, Jay, what I'm going to tell you is, yeah, you should probably work your butt off. Uh, <laughs> that makes sense. Like you, you should do that. Um, but I think what we ought to do is work at whatever it is that we're working at, but also realize that there are some things that we cannot change and we ought to work under that auspice. But the big question, the big thing to realize is this, and I think this is fascinating, but whenever anyone says something along the lines of, uh, I'm going to do what I can and just let karma or just let the universe or anything like that take care of it, what they're voicing is an understanding of the universe as a volitional entity that in some way is watching over them. Mm. It becomes, it becomes almost a secular or atheistic version of Rick Warren's, the purpose driven life, mm. right? It becomes this idea where I think the universe is looking out for me. Well, that means that the universe is alive because if the universe is not alive, how is it looking out for you? Right. Like I can believe that my dog is looking out for me. Now, granted, I think I'm superior to a dog, um, but it does make sense for me to say that I think my cup is looking out for me. <laughs> you know, unless I think my cup is alive at that point in time, I probably need to, you know, get a different cup. Cause that's weird. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I, I think that do, I think you need to surrender. Do I think you need to work harder? Probably. Yes. In both situations. Uh, what, 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 what do you think? What was your takeaway? You know what? I, I, I will admit and be very honest in saying that I have no clue because, uh, I, that's, a, that's one that I struggle with. I, I, I do believe, um, and this is probably the most, um, sp I'll use the word spiritual that I've, that I may have gotten on this podcast. Cause I'm going to use a specific story, um, that comes out of the Bible that I have found a lot of value in recently as it relates to this specific topic. And, um, I heard someone explaining the story. The story is basically that, uh, Jesus Christ is at someone's house and there are two sisters that are with him at the house. And one of the sisters is serving him by making sure that uh, everyone is being entertained. She's preparing the meal. She's doing all of these things um, on behalf of Jesus or for Jesus Christ. Um, and yet her sister is just sitting next to Christ, um, just being with him. And I've always heard it taught that um, the sister named Martha that was doing all of these things was just kind of as, as strange says, like not surrendering. And she was just going and doing all these things and distracting herself from Christ. While the other sister, Mary, who is sitting with Christ, was really doing the, the right thing. Um, and I never really quite understood it, but I actually heard someone explain it in this way, that for the Christian who believes that they're serving Christ by doing things, because let's, let's, let's be real with it, Martha was serving Christ, but it was absent of a relationship with him. In other words, if Jesus was thirsty, and Martha's running around taking care of the food and taking care of like, you know, cleaning up the house. 
she really can't serve him in the way that he's asked her to serve because she doesn't know that he's thirsty. Right. Mary, on the other hand, who's sitting right next to him and having a conversation with him and getting to know him, he's getting to know her. They're, they're going through and creating an in-depth relationship. He can turn to Mary and tell her anything and she will know that that is what he wants of her. And so I think as we apply that to surrender or work, I think that there is, um, I agree with you 100%. I don't think that we're supposed to just stop working. But I think that when we're prompted to do something, and when we are in relationship, and so if, you, if you're not a Christian and you call it like, I want to be connected to the spiritual because the spiritual will um, help dictate what I am supposed to do in life. I would say that that is, is accurate. Now, I'm going to term ter- take, take the term spiritual and just, intersperse that with Jesus Christ. But I think that that's where I'm currently at with that kind of question. And it's not quite a apples to apples comparison of what Dr. Strange is going through right here. But I think that there's a, there's a strong component related to that. No, I, I think so. And I, I think it's interesting. Also, I mean, looking at through history, like on the, on the other side, obviously in that situation, you know, the, the, the one is clearly demonized, uh, not demonized, like she's a demon, but just, she, she's she's missing the point. At the same time, man, it is so hard to look at like the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys and say that that guy didn't work. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Right, exactly. And so, and that's where, I mean, even if you've ever heard the phrase Protestant work ethic, uh, it's one of those issues that happens was that, uh, you know, Protestant Christians developed this idea that by working, I am glorifying God, and therefore they became good workers, and all that they did, they did unto the glory of God. Um, and so that's where I think that the idea of Learning how to rest and surrender uh, is important. Actually, I mean, we're, you know, Jay, where, where you and I met, uh, there became a, a huge inf- I, 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 you know, push and thrust at this one point in time about just resting more. Uh, and there was a guy who wrote a book called The Rest of God who came and spoke, which, by the way, Rest of God is a fantastic uh, title because it, 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 it's very misleading. It's actually talking about rest as in to cease work. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, but he was very much saying we just need to sit and receive. And there's something to that, that we Absolutely. do need to sit and receive and stop doing busy work. But at the same time, you know, the, the depiction of life seems to be more than just being still. There seems right. to be a doing something as well. So that's where I think that there's an inclination to, stra- to Strange's question because once he surrenders in order to control it, he does a lot of work to control it. So yes. I think there's an interesting, I mean, it's hard to sit there and be like, you know, at the end, after he learns how to m- manipulate time and then comes into the Dormammu, I've come to bargain, you know, how many times does he go through the work of getting violently killed in order to end up winning? Right. right. Like, right. and so that's a massive work that he does after he surrendered to be able to control something. So uh, there's a cyclical thing that I think is, is important. That's absolutely true. Hey guys, pardon my brief interruption here, but do you need a new pair of headphones? If you do, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Urban Vinyl. They make premium wood headphones that look amazing. But here's the thing, they're made by audiophiles for audiophiles, so they sound as good as they look. In fact, reviewers have called their headphones the best headphones on the market. Better even than Bose and Beats. And you know what? I agree. 
They're what I use when I record this podcast. Please consider purchasing a pair using the link in the show notes. If you click the link to their website and use the promo code J, my name, my first name, J-A-Y, super simple, you save 15% and Urban Vinyl will make a donation to the Reclamation Society. So if you need headphones or you're looking to upgrade the pair that you currently have, definitely take a look at what Urban Vinyl has to offer. Click the link in the show notes to visit their website and use my name, J-A-Y, to get the 15% discount. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, so I'm going to skip this next question and move on to uh, this concept of um, Doctor Strange is very reminiscent of both The Matrix and Inception. And I'm sure other films that I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head. Sure. But these are all... Uh, fanciful films, but they draw on the perceived reality of our own experience. Now, I, I actually, knowing that you are a philosopher, I actually put perceived reality of our own experience in there purposefully. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much for that. <laughs> yeah. um, so my question to you is, we have other dimensions, we have multiverses, we have alternate worlds that exist within computers, we have our subconscious. How are all of these things related and why are we so drawn to explore them in our films and our books and, and, and narratives? Gosh, well, there's, there's so much to unpack, uh, like, uh, at that point in time, um, you know, there's a few different things on one hand, I think we're interested in other dimensions and computer realms and things like that because we're just satisfied with our current one. Hmm. You know, I mean, let, let's be serious. Why, um, you know, if you remember back to the uh, the TV show from when we were young that we probably shouldn't have been watching, but married with children, <laughs> right? Why why does Al Bundy spend so many of his much of his time uh, looking at that naughty magazine that he's not supposed to? Well, it's because he's not satisfied with his wife, right? And so he he lives in this fictitious world as a means of trying to escape what dissatisfies him. Hmm. You know. Why do we have so much like the the massive online multiplayer like World of Warcraft stuff? I've I've never gotten into it, and there's some people who play it because that's just like a fun recreational thing. But there's other people that play it. Why? Well, because they're just not satisfied with who they are, and so they're able to be a different thing. And in that world, I can be whatever I want to be. And so the right. concept of there being another world in which I am free of this one, or this is a different world, it becomes an uncharted territory. At the same time, another aspect of why it's interested is the fact that uh, we have no more lands to conquer, right? Like we're, we're Alexander after he marched his elephants into, uh, into India. <laughs> right. You know, we've discovered everything. You know, like uh, we, we've mapped the world. We're not going to find another new island. You know, mm -hmm. and we're mapping the solar system without having to go out there. So what are, what are we going to explore? Those stories that were, you know, driving us when the conquistadors were, you know, going off. Maybe we'll find the edge of the world. Maybe we'll find the Garden of Eden. Those stories are, are gone. And right. so now this need to explore is also met with this idea of this other universe, uh, these other universes. Then again, I think there's also the fact that We've realized there's something not right with this world. And I would say we realize that we're made for another world. Mm -hmm. uh, or I should say we're realized that we are made for this world, but it's broken in some way. And so we're made for something higher, a paradise restored. And so we're telling these narratives to go ahead and create this world that we're supposed to connect to. 
So I think we're interested in the matrix. You know, the matrix was basically the allegory of the cave to some extent. This idea of what if you have been told nothing but lies your entire life? What if you could wake up? Mm. You know, Inception, I'm not going to lie. I didn't watch Inception. So mm. from what I'm told, though, there's a bunch of dream stuff that happens and how do you actually know reality? Um, yes. You know, and things like that. And it does bring up questions because philosophers have made us to the point where how do we know that the world we're interacting with is the actual one? And so right. we live, we're breathing air that says we might not be interacting with this actual world. And so this idea of conceiving other worlds that we can interact with and partake of, uh, it's exciting. And it scratches this existential itch that we have of being able to belong and belong to something that is correct and fixed. Oh, I think that's a great take. Um, the, 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 the only thing I add to that take um, is that I, I think that these are also all still mysteries to us, right? Like we, despite the fact that we can map the earth and despite the fact that, like you said, we can map the solar system even, um, there's still that question of, but what's beyond the universe or what's beyond... You know, when we talk about like our subconscious, like why do we have a subconscious? Why does the brain work that way? Like there's a lot of why questions that I think exist here too. And it, and it because we've already explored the world and because, you know, I, I oftentimes um, as a writer, I oftentimes think like I mourn the fact that it'd be almost impossible to write an Indiana Jones film in the modern world because the suspension of disbelief has to then... Um, take on a new take on a new turn because we've already explored all the world so we know that there isn't um uh, a whole well I, I won't say that we know there isn't a holy grail but you know what i'm saying like in the fanciful right. nature of those stories we know that like indiana jones went to explore but right now we could watch a youtube video and be exactly where he was so that takes away from some of that magic but we still don't understand dreams we still don't fully understand um, what it would be like to escape to a computer-based world um, for perpetuity, right? Not just playing the game, but like being in it. Um, and these dimensions, there's some indication that there are dimensions, but we don't really know what those fully are. There could be what? What do we we're talk about when we talked about Stranger Things, like 12 different dimensions? Yeah, there were, there uh, were 12 dimensions that collapsed to 10 right after the start of things. Yeah, so so these are things that are, they fascinate us because we don't have answers for them, um, and I think that that's just another component of it that makes it really good for uh, us to explore in our stories. Yeah, totally. I mean, if if going back to Aristotle, his his famous statement is "All men by nature desire to know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's one of the things. Like we we've done it. That's where and, and going back to what I said about the tenth Doctor, one of his statements is, you know, why did humans go to the moon? Because we could. Right. Because we wanted right. to see what was there. Like, we want to explore. And so the idea of an uncharted territory, oh, that's fascinating. That gets us yeah, going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we, um, we are a species, if you will, that craves more knowledge at all costs. And I, I'm going to get real philosophical on you. I, I oftentimes think we want knowledge at the expense of wisdom. Oh yeah, totally. Well, I mean, let's, <laughs> let's well let, let's be serious. Uh, I mean that that that's the the realm that we live in. Why does WebMD exist? Right. Like we have we are a, we are a society right now that has more access to more knowledge at any given time, and we are dumber because of it. <laughs> it is so true. Yeah, I think like, that, 
I think we oftentimes think, um, and we I always have to check myself because sometimes I can fall into the same um, pattern, is that we think that we are smarter than human beings who walked the earth 3,000 years ago. Yes. And what I oftentimes think is, yes, we have access to so much more knowledge. They might have thought the world was flat. But I can almost guarantee you they are just as wise about living life, if not wiser in some ways than we are today, even with the lack of knowledge that they have. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, logic, we call that uh, the the fallacy of chronological snobbery. We either assume (laughs) that the ancients were much smarter than we are or that the ancients were much dumber than we are. I mean, one of the most beautiful situations of it was... um, the fact is the ancients have some ability with skill work that we're not able to mimic uh, their, their craftsmanship of being able to make jewelry. We're not able to mimic by hand by some reasons. And one of the things was that when the Luxor pyramid was made in Vegas, um, even with all of our technology, we were not able to make it completely symmetrical. And mm. yet the pyramid of Gaza of, of Giza is. Yeah. Yeah. And the only conclusion people had was aliens. Right. right. Aliens must have made the pyramid because those people back then could not be more advanced than we were in some way. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's where, you know, C.S. Lewis is, if you believe something's impossible, you'll believe anything no matter how improbable. So if you think it's impossible that they were as smart or smarter than us in some ways, aliens make total sense. <laughs> right, right, right. Totally. Um, okay, so now I'm gonna, we're going to switch gears just slightly. Sure. Um, because, uh, Caecilius, the ancient one and Mordo ha- all have distinct perspectives on this term. I think that Mordo uses it, um, most often, and that is breaking the natural law. Yes. So I have, I have two questions for you then, because obviously okay. Caecilius is, um, the, his former belief system he has turned from and almost reversed it. Right. He's, he's right. breaking the natural law um, and he has no qualms about it. The ancient one is a big twist in the story is she's breaking the natural law because she's pulling upon power from the dark dimension, which she's not supposed to do. And it's called a hypocrite in the story. Um, but she feels she needs to do that in order to protect, protect the realm that she lives in to protect you know our realm, our dimension. And Mordo, on the other hand, and this is why Scott Derrickson calls him a fundamentalist, he says you should not break the natural law at any cost. So those are the three different perspectives, just for those who are asking why did I choose those three characters. So the two questions I have for you, Sam, what does it mean to break the natural law in the terms in the terms of this movie and in the terms of our own lives? And then two, which character's perspective do you side with and why? Okay, yeah, so this idea of breaking the natural law, it really depends what you consider the natural law, right? So this idea of the laws of nature, the natural law, have been a part of the philosophical or societal discussion for a long time, going back all the way to the group of philosophers called the Stoics, right? And even within them, they had this idea that the natural law was included such things as your station in life, right? So the Stoics had this idea that if you were if you were the emperor, that is the law of nature, that's how it's to be, don't rebel against it. If you're a slave, that's the way it's supposed to be, don't rebel against it. Find your happiness and contentment in fulfilling the law of nature. Um, hmm. By the way, that, that view was much easier to hold to if you were the emperor than if you were a slave. But so, uh, as we're kind of depicting and going through this, uh, 
what the laws of nature probably mean on a kind of like a, a, a broader sense, at least within the realm of Doctor Strange, is that magic seems to be a part of the way things are. And again, I like the way that they use magic because magic is actually dimensional energy in Doctor Strange. Hmm. And so they're pulling from the way things are. Um, and so I think the laws of nature, what we can say is basically the way things are supposed to be. And so in breaking the laws of nature, what you're doing is you're going against the way things are supposed to be. So in a very real way, like within a Christian narrative, I can say that when we sin or go against uh, God's commands, we are breaking the laws of nature, going against the way things ought to be. Hmm. Um, and I think most people would say that when we do something that is unethical or wrong, even outside of a Christian paradigm, it is breaking the laws of nature. It is doing things not the way they're supposed to be. Um, so when we're looking at these ideas, so Caecilius, the Ancient One, and Mordo, um, the Ancient One is realizing I am breaking the laws of nature, but I'm breaking the laws of nature for the sake of stopping a greater rupture to the laws of nature. Like, I'm doing that which is evil for the sake of stopping a greater evil. Right. And that becomes an, an interesting ethical question. Even asking, when doing that, does that evil action stop being evil? Hmm. So, you know, I mean, that gets into some massive questions about, you know, I ask my, my students all the time, like, is it wrong, if we say lying is wrong, is it wrong to lie to save someone from the Nazis? Um we would say that dropping a bomb on civilians is wrong, but if dropping a bomb on Hiroshima shortens the war by five years and saves millions of lives, is that wrong? Is doing a wrong thing under certain situations okay? And so that's where what the question that the ancient one kind of is bringing up is that, no, 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 sometimes it's okay to break the laws of nature, where Cassilius basically is saying that the laws of nature um, have failed us. The laws right. of nature are destroying us. We ought to rebel against them completely. Um, and Mordo sees no budge whatsoever. In fact, sees that sorcerers now are uh, the problem because they have the ability to manipulate the laws of nature um, uh, or break the natural law. Uh, what perspective do I side with? Gosh, uh, I feel like, you know, every part of me feels like I should say I side with Mordo. <laughs> right? Because Mordo is the guy who says there are absolute rights and wrong. And there was a time I would have done that. Um, and obviously I'm not going to side with Caecilius. Now I will say this, uh, if I was not from a Christian perspective, um, and if I was a nihilist, if I was following Nietzsche, I probably would be with full Caecilius saying nature has failed us. Let's overthrow it. Right. Um, right. And perhaps there's a way I can say that even if I'm looking at the brokenness of our, of our world and trying to say, let's overthrow the brokenness of our world, perhaps I'm an inverted Caecilius. Um, but I understand what the Ancient One's doing, and I think ultimately Doctor Strange kind of understands what the Ancient One's doing. I mean, I think Doctor Strange would have said, let's not do this, but I think Mordo's, I think there needs to be an area between the Ancient One and Mordo. Mm. I think there needs to be an area between the Ancient One's pragmatism and Mordo's there's no excuse for this because I think a lot of times we live in that gray area because again, I'm coming from a Christian perspective and I think lying is wrong. Yet there are two times in scripture where lying is extolled and is viewed as a positive. Um, and yes, lying to protect, uh, protect people from the Nazis. Gosh, I have a hard time calling that wrong. Or if I say that's wrong, it's the better of the wrongs. And what I mean by that is, we live in a world in which we can't stop wrongness. Hmm. So because I'm in a situation where I can't stop wrongness, what, what action do I do 
Mordo seems to think that I can always stop the wrongness. Gosh, and again, I don't want to go super political here, but Mordo, to go ahead and put it into our political thing from last year, Mordo is your hashtag never Trump guy. Mm. Right? Mordo is that guy. The ancient one is the person that goes, hey, uh, Trump is the, the, the lesser of two evils. Mm. And I guess that means Caecilius is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> uh, I guess that's you know, how it plays out. Um, you know, or something. And I think there's problems with you know, b- either of those views. I think, I think there has to be something kind of in between. And I think Doctor Strange ends up in between the Ancient One and Mordo. That puts him fully against Caecilius, but that also puts him against Mordo. Uh, and I think we'll see that in Strange too, whenever it happens. But what, what what's your take on the breaking the natural law? Well, I think it's interesting because you you brought up uh, Strange there at the end, and I think that his, I th- I do think that he he does uh, kind of fit into the mold you're looking for because he does use the Eye of Agamotto um, in a way that Mordo does not agree with, nor does. Um, the uh, keeper of the library, who, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, Wong. Um, Wong, yes. Um, and so I do believe that he basically is saying, like, yeah, 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 you guys are being too restrictive in the rules by which you're going to live. Um, I think to take it to a more maybe more practical level for us. And I I often reflect on this because I don't hear people talk about it anymore. And I used to as a kid a lot more. Um, But it is this concept of um, putting other people at the same level you're at or, or being more selfless as opposed to selfish. Right. Mm, Yeah. I think about like if, if we defined breaking the natural law, as not showing love. Um, I think that there are a lot of cases where we could say, oh, of course we would lie in this case because we're saving people's lives, right? Like, because we're trying to show more love. Um, And I think that that's a much easier uh, question to ask and answer than this this breaking the natural law. So I guess I'm ducking the question in a way because I'm thinking to myself that, well, breaking the natural law, what does the natural law even mean? We've used those terms, maybe not in those exact words, to condemn multiple people over the course of time because they did not agree with our worldview, our stance on something politically, whatever it may be, we have condemned them because in our minds, they quote unquote, broke the natural law. And in in condemning them, we didn't show them love at all. Right. And I think that that's probably where I would side is this is this, um, it's not so much gray, it's not so much gray for me. Um, there's, there's lots of scenarios that become gray where people would like to say that they're black or white. But the reality is because are you are you loving people or are you are you just upholding a moral standard that you believe in um, at the expense of someone else? Um, so the golden rule has become something that is completely lost in our modern day society, I believe. It's we've become very selfish in so many different ways. No, I think you're uh, dead on with that. So uh, I, I, that's kind of how I would go after that particular question. Makes sense. Yeah. Two more questions to go. Um, the first one is, does 
Doctor Strange redeem himself in the end? And if so, how? And what about him actually changes? What is his what is his character arc and how does how is he redeemed if he's redeemed? Yeah, okay, so that's interesting. Like, does he redeem himself? Because what we see in that final scene where he's breaking the laws of nature by reversing time, um, and then eventually what we see when he's meeting with Thor is that he's still a very confident, maybe slightly arrogant guy. That's kind of how he comes off. Mm. However, it's for something higher than him. So what he was doing when we first met him was he was looking at ways to operate on people for his own glory, right? For his own renown. Right. Uh, Not necessarily to help the person who was wounded. Now, why is he doing those parlor tricks with Thor in that cutscene? What does it do? Well, it's because he's trying to protect the universe and this plane of existence from threats, and Loki's a threat. Mm. Like, there's this change in him where all of a sudden what he cares about is someone else. So it's very similar to, I mean, we've seen the Spider-Man origin enough times that we know that Spider-Man has the great power, but because he doesn't use the great responsibility, his uncle dies. Right. You know, well, you could see that this idea of Doctor Strange being, hey, Loki's here, and the early Doctor Strange would be like, not my problem, unless he's going to pay and I can fix his brain. Right. Where now he's very proactively saying, we need to save, we might need to, I might need to intervene to save the universe. And so yep. I think there is a redemption that through what he's done, he's seen that there's one, something higher than himself, and two, that others matter more than he does, which is that shift from arrogance to humility where he knows that he's excellent at something, but now he sees that in that excellence, he needs to use that excellence for the sake of others, not for his own personal gain. Yeah, could not agree more. Um, and that is that is a th- central theme of most comic book stories, is that idea that, uh, particularly in origin stories, this ability to overcome the desire to be selfish and then to be able to give up of oneself. Um, and I think... I like the twist because I, I agree with you that he is redeemed. And this is the problem that I have with Logan is that the redemption is just so worthless in that movie. Again, I'm right. not going to spoil it for you, but it's just not its not worth anything. And in this case, his redemption is worth something because when he decides that he needs to take action against Dormammu, he goes through a series of incredibly painful deaths not dying because he's created the time loop, but he has to experience pain over and over and over and over again, almost in a way that's probably worse than death. Um, And so he's basically taken the stance that I will go through extensive amounts of pain in order to save others. And, and, And he wouldn't even go through reputation loss to save others in the beginning of the movie. Right. So I think it's the I, I think that this is one of the better character arcs um, in recent in recent memory. Now I, I I'm also a fan of the the movie that has that throws worldviews against one another and then actually um, doesn't have any character arcs at all. It just is kind of like the world sucks. Um, yeah. So I like movies like The Watchmen or like you mentioned The Dark Knight. Um, but what I don't like is when the was when we consider something redemption that is not a character giving up of himself, at least not very much. So that's yeah, that's where I would say like. Uh, so I think this movie does a really good job of that. Um, 
which brings us to one last and final question. And I think that there may be other things that you want, you, we might want to touch on. So this will be the last question, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to end our discussion. Sure. Um, the ancient one at one point in the movie turns to Stephen Strange. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this, Sam, I have not asked someone this intensive a question on the podcast yet. So you are <laughs> the first recipient of this. This is a brutal, brutal question. Uh, so the ancient one at one point in the movie turns to Stephen Strange and asks, who are you in this vast multiverse? And I just thought to myself, like, of all the questions that the movie raises, what a fantastic question to turn on ourselves. And so I am going to ask you, Mr. Soon-to-be Dr. Sam Wellbaum, uh, who are you, Sam Wellbaum, in this vast universe? Man, let me tell you, that, that is an intense and, and helpful question to ask because there's so many things that underlie it. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Douglas Adams' uh, book series, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, and so uh, in that, one of the things that he, he, you know, he refers to Earth as an, uh, a small pale blue dot on the unfashionable end of, the, of an arm of the Orion Galaxy. Hmm. You know, this idea of we're small, we're nothing, we're insignificant. Um, and so we're this tiny, small, insignificant thing. Um, at the same time, Gosh, if I'm coming at this from another thing, everything about my life, I seem to think that I'm the main character in some story. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me to buy that. Um, and so what, as I think through it is this, like all of us seem to think that we're the main character in our story. Uh, actually, one of my favorite cut scenes on the TV show Scrubs um, is that uh, JD has one of his many flashbacks and in it he's Robin. Uh, and someone says, you're not even the main character in your flashback, in your, in your, you know, your, your dream. <laughs> he goes, well, at least you're not Alfred. And then it goes back to him and he's Alfred's and he's like, darn you. <laughs> um, and so who am I in this vast universe? Well, here's the thing. I, I hope to heck that I am not the main character, hmm. right? Like as I'm thinking through this multiverse thing, yeah, I exist. And the sheer impossibility of my existence is weighty right and 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 by that what i mean is the fact that um you know my mom had however many amount of eggs that people that that you know people have and of all the millions and billions of sperm that my dad you know uh, created at any point in time those two met and formed me yeah. Right. The sheer impossibility of that happening, let alone those two people meeting and everything like that, the sheer fact that I exist seems to be that there's something unique about me. That doesn't mean that I'm the only person uh, in existence that can do the things that I do, by no means. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, maybe I am the only person in the universe that does what I do. You know, uh, in philosophy, we talk about this ideally of like, of, of qualia, like, no one's experience is my experience. You and I can both have an experience of a sunny day, but your experience of that sunny day is Jay's experience, and I cannot have Jay's experience right. of a sunny day. I can have Sam's experience of a sunny day. Um, and so there is a distinct uniqueness to us in what we're doing. But who am I in this vast universe? Gosh, I don't think everything in the universe is designed and centered around me. You know, the way that I, I, I structure and think is that I am a character, as it were, in this narrative of a much larger author. Um, 
And obviously, I would say that that I think is the god of the Judeo-Christian canon. Um, and so I would say that I, I am someone created in his image, seeking to serve him, living out my life in this larger narrative. Um, obviously, I want to understand the world that I think that I'm this main character. Um, but I think that I am a character in a much larger story. Gosh, and I hope that in uh, other people's stories, I am a supportive character to them. Uh, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm more Wilson, uh, the, the neighbor on Home Improvement, than I am Kimmy Gilbler, uh, the neighbor in Full House, <laughs> right? Um, but beyond that, who am I in this universe? Gosh, I, I want to say that I'm, I'm, I'm a servant of Christ doing the things that he has made me able to do. Um, but it's an amazing question. And even as I answer that, please let me hear, please hear me as I say this, I'm answering that wondering if that's my actual answer, right? I'm a pastor right. and a professor. And so that is the knee jerk reaction that I know I'm supposed to give. Right. But when this podcast is done, when you and I have recorded this, when all is said and done and I lay down to go to sleep tonight and I ponder that question, gosh, what answer comes up? Because that goes back to that question of identity. Right. What do I define myself as? How do I understand the world? Because in my, in my least great moments, uh, who am I in this universe? I am the most important thing in existence. <laughs> um, but I also know me. And if I am the most important thing in existence, oh my gosh, everything in the universe is crap. <laughs> right exactly. right and so that's where I, I just think it's important to kind of uh, draw that parallel so it's interesting but so jay what about you in this vast multiverse who are you <laughs> no you i think you you actually approached it from the exact right um place I, and i i did i do think that um i love the fact that we're bookending the questions with um identity right because and, I, and by the way when i wrote these questions i didn't think like oh i'm gonna bookend these things i just saw that question and said like that's how we have to end the podcast because nice. that's what this movie is essentially prompting every single person who watches it must consider that question and if you don't consider the question then you're really not a story geek because you're just trying to escape um, right. which is okay by the way you can escape go do yeah. that but every once in a while come back and consider something um and for me i, I think that uh it does come back to what i place my identity in and i think the thing that always for me draws me back to saying i need to put my identity in christ is is how often that i don't so You'd expect you'd expect I think a Christian person to say like oh well I'm I'm I know that I am so firmly rooted in in Christ I am uh, and, and that even as I say that terminology I'm going like if you're not a Christian you're probably look at, you probably look at me and roll your eyes and go like I don't even know what that means right um, which you know just just play in the world with me for a second um, but I, I reflect often um, how many times I fail to actually place my identity in Christ. And what I mean by that is, I believe that I have a faith in Jesus Christ and therefore Jesus Christ has said that God will see me as Jesus Christ and see my identity as Jesus Christ and therefore accept me because of that, right? Um, it is not by my own ability or my own morality or my own ability to meet a set of standards that I have relationship with God. It is only by the work of Jesus Christ. Yet, 
I live some large portion of my day not focusing on myself in that identity. In other words, if you had a Jesus cap and you had a Jay Shear cap, I'm putting on the Jay Shear cap far more than I would really like to put the Jay Shear cap on, which then for everyone around me and everyone who's looking at me saying, you really don't th- seem like you put are putting your identity there. And I would say, I know I'm super bummed out that I do that, but I believe that I want to do that more. And the the real thing that, com- that I come back to is I am just so thankful and uh, n- not to use the hashtag blessed word <laughs> overly, but I'm so thankful and blessed that I'm forgiven for not putting on the hat more often and that it's still not on me. Um, and that's my belief system is that despite the fact that I put the Jay Shear hat on way too often, far more often than I'd like. The fact that Jesus Christ, um, I believe, came into this world to give me a, another cap um, means that he puts, puts the cap on top of the J-Shear even when I don't take the J-Shear off. Um, and I just think that that's what my, um, what my identity is in this, in this giant world. And so, as you said, what is that, where does that put me? That puts me in a place where, um, you know, I'm trying to be... Uh, a good person, not a good person. That's, that's, that's actually the opposite of what I want to say. Uh, uh, live into that identity of being a child of Jesus Christ. That's where I hope. Yeah. And I I think that's important. And I mean, every, every conversation I have, I seem to take back to Soren Kierkegaard. Um, well, who doesn't really? Well, yeah, right. (laughs) Gosh, here's the thing. Every time I say Soren Kierkegaard, I just imagine someone thinks it's like a, a rare bird, of some sort, and I have an Australian accent. Oh, it's a soaring kick you got. Uh, You know, um, but Danish existential philosopher, and he talks about, he has, he has a sermon. Okay, he doesn't call it a sermon. So here's the thing. He doesn't refer to any of his sermons as sermons. He calls them upbuilding discourses because he Hmm. didn't think that he was qualified to write a sermon. But he has this upbuilding discourse that I think is just one of the most beautifully titled Things like even if even if what he says and it doesn't apply to something, I try to use the title at least once a week in something because <laughs> it's it's just so brilliant. But the title of it is "Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing," hmm. and I, I think there's just something so uh, distinct there because you know Jay, what you're describing there is this idea of the fact that the, the purity of heart is to will one thing, and yet so often I put my Sam hat on and not my Christ hat on. You put your J hat on and not your mm-hmm. Christ hat. Uh, I don't know if you ever put your Sam hat on. I've I've never put my J hat on. Um, <laughs> Every once in a while, and then I realize oh, that um, fantastic. my brain is not big enough to have the Sam hat on. And then I just uh, it's it it's it's mostly our early inflation lard. It's fine, uh, <laughs> and so we're we're good. Um, but so we 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 look at this idea that the purity of heart. What is it? It's to will. This, this, this one thing to go ahead and remove ourselves from complete duplicity. And one of the, the lines that Kierkegaard says that gets him in so much trouble from people who misunderstand him is he says that uh, my goal is to find a truth that is true for me. Mm. And people look at that and say, ah, he doesn't believe in truth. And so, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that my goal is to, for something to be true for me, for me to actually believe something is true, it must overtake my existence. I must live in accordance with it. And mm. so what I need to find is not the thing that I pay lip service to, but the thing that I actually believe that will transform me. 
And so the question of who am I in this vast multiverse, I mean, I think what you're getting into this idea of how do I become what he calls the singular individual, the mm. person who steps away from the herd and becomes what they are supposed to be and will this one thing that they're supposed to will. Um, and I think that's just a beautifully stated idea of how do we crystallize what we are. And so to, to put Kierkegaard in conversation with the ancient one, who are you in this vast universe? I am the individual that God made me to be. Hmm. And I must will to be that one thing and nothing else. And in doing that, I become more me than I've ever been before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. awesome. And, and I think that's where this, it's this important thing to understand and think through that. Who am I? The majority of the time, I am not Sam Wellbaum. I am something less than Sam Wellbaum. Hmm. And what I would love to be is actually Sam Wellbaum. And in doing that, I must seek not me, but God to become even more me so that I can be the me I was made to be. There you go. There, there you go. Um, so is there anything else that we need to cover that we have not covered yet in the, in the film? I mean, we had this entire conversation. We didn't even talk at all about time manipulation. Um, yes. You know, but the fact is we talked about that a little bit with Stranger Things. Um, and uh, we've talked about so much. And the chances of us being able to talk about time manipulation in another podcast are so high <laughs> right, that right. I don't know that we need to push this past the two hour mark uh, much farther to go ahead and uncover that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we, we only talked a little bit about the Dormammu I've come to bargain meme. Uh that was a beautifully done scene. <laughs> like this idea of the fact that Doctor Strange has only been doing magic, uh, you know, for like a year or so, maybe not that long, and he's figured out a way to outsmart this ancient demon. That's beautiful, right? Yeah. Like it shows this idea of I'm not going to win on sheer might, so I'm going to win based on wisdom and craftiness. Yep, yep. You know, I mean, it's great. You know, to go ahead and sit there. I mean, Doctor Strange is a wizard. He'd probably be House Slytherin. Right, like that's what it looks like. Like he, the guy's crafty, and I think that 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 there there's something there to be said. Um, gosh, I, like I said, there's there was just so much in the movie, even though it seemed like it moved quick. Um, but yeah, I think I think we covered quite a bit. What what do you think? Is there anything else that in the course of the conversation that we've brushed upon that we have we didn't fully touch that you want to explore? Oh man, I mean, we could probably do a podcast on each one of the questions and just address that one question. Um, but I do think you're right. I think we skipped over the time as, as I as I listened to the interview. And by the way, it is the Empire podcast, and you had to go back a ways because the Scott Derrickson interview. They do a lot of podcasts, so the Scott Derrickson interview is, you know, a few months back. I just saved it on my phone because I knew I would do a podcast about it. But he, they talked a lot about time manipulation, and it was um, it was definitely a main tenet of what they discussed in fact the empire crew after they had already hung up with um scott talked a little bit about how uh in 2014 which is supposed to be present day and i'm going to forget which marvel film it is but dr strange is mentioned and they just talked about how well technically dr strange occurs in 2016 but he's not dr strange until 2016 so how in the world did he appear in 2014 unless there's time manipulation of some some sort um so time definitely is a big thing uh with this film and the ability to sort of overcome time or change time in certain ways um i felt like that was more of a gimmick than it was anything else because 
just like the mirror dimension, um, those things were sort of more additions that served to move the plot forward than they were core to the the questions that were being asked. Um, but I don't know. What was your take on that, on the time piece of it? I mean, on the time piece, I thought it was great. One, as soon as the time thing happened, I was like, okay, well, this is the time stone. You know, so yeah, of yeah, the yeah. of the infinity gems, I was like, okay, we just uh, we we just found what number five, I think it is. Uh, you know, we just found the time one. Um, but I think it's I think it's an interesting and important thing that uh, he's able to have some type of control over time because of this. But to alter time is against the laws of nature, as Mordo told us. You are mm. not to change time. Um, which anytime time travel happens, that is an overwhelming law. I do think it's interesting. The way Doctor Strange decided to handle time is that the person who's manipulating time or the people involved in that manipulation, they're outside the effect of the time of, of time being manipulated. Therefore, they don't have to deal with the, the looper problem. Ah, of yes. If you yes. go back and like they don't have to deal with this, like you're you're anchored. Yep. yep. You know, I mean, anytime time travel uh, happens, it becomes this problematic thing about why don't you just go ahead and fix all the problems and, and things like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I think they did a good job with it. I think visually the way they did it was pretty fun. Um, but obviously as time was going back, like they went back and like these aquariums rebuilt themselves and one of the guys got stuck in an aquarium. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, and it, it's fascinating. But so the, the rules for time being manipulated were very loose with yes. the doctor. Yes. Uh, with uh, Doctor Strange there. Um, and I think it was helpful to the narrative. I think they... Um, so, this is not a shameless self-plug, um, but I, as a writer, I actually... Um, my co- The co-founder of the Reclamation Society, Nathan Sheck, and I put out a book in 2012 called Time Slingers. And it is about a time travel... Um, group of people that is one one group is trying to alter the past so that they can change the present and the other group is trying to prevent them from doing so and that was one of the rules that was one of the same rules that we came up with is that the molecular structure of the person and hence their in you know in our worldview we don't really go into this in the story but their spirit and their soul as well uh, their energy if you will um, becomes disconnected from the timeline so that when they travel, they would not be able to go back and meet themselves. Right. Cause like yeah. you, you inherently, when you're building time travel rules, it is impossible because you're going to break your own rule at some point in time. When you realize that you can't carry forth what you thought you were going to carry forth because you, your rules are so complex and the nature of the way that time travel occurs is so ridiculous. Yeah. That you either have to be, you know, we came up with a rule that was, um, you know, the time, the time you couldn't travel back, uh, over and over and over again. You had to, there was a, there was a, um, because we were using sort of a more of a wormhole concept, so, which is sort of what you have to use unless right. you're going to have multiple timelines and alternate timelines. Um, so we were using a, a wormhole view that said, well, the wormhole takes time to, um, retract itself back into um, normalcy. So if you bend time on itself and you go to another location in time, um, one, it takes excessive energy to go back farther and farther. So you, so you, you know, if you only have so much energy available, you can only go back a certain number, you know, 
a short time frame, let's say. Also, once you've created the wormhole to that location, it takes time for that to restore itself. So you can't go back. So in other words, you couldn't go back five minutes earlier. Yeah. Or, or you know, because that's the other thing, right? Like, why don't you just go back five minutes earlier? Go, go back another five minutes earlier. Go back 10 minutes earlier. Um, those are all rules you must consider and you must play with in your writing the time travel stuff. So it's, I almost feel like it's better to be loose with the rules and just try and be entertaining with it because otherwise it gets ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you have to. It's one of those things that like, you know, so in the Doctor Who narrative, like anytime there's something where they say, oh, it's so sad blank happened. The question always comes up, well, why don't you just go back in time and stop it from happening? And the way they say it's time to go, oh, that's a fixed point in history. Right. <laughs> right it's right, a fixed right. point. You can't change it. Right. right, uh, right. And so one time they had him try and change a fixed point and it didn't work. Mm. Um, and so that's where it's like, okay, that's interesting. You know, so or again, you know, if I, I, the first time I was on here on the show, basically the, I turned our talk of stranger things almost into a, a podcast on lost. Um, <laughs> and we're going to go back to the Island right now. Um, because there, you know, they have Daniel Faraday's character, uh, talk about time traveling. He's like, Look, you can't change the past. You can't change the past. Um, and when they finally bring time travel into it, what we see is every time they try and change the past, it doesn't work. Because what they've done is what has always been the case. And so they go ahead and say, okay, so this is the rule that we have to play. Um, which is another set of rules that you can go ahead and say, okay, so this is happening because this is the way it's always been. Right. Uh, and in doing that, and so the, and that's a set of rules that works. But yeah, I think you have to either be really stringent using time travel and saying that you can't change things and things are always the way that they are. Um, or you have to play fast and loose with the rules of time travel and just be there for the fun. You know, uh, you know, the way mystery science theater, you know, always said, you know, you should really just relax. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I, did, I, did, I didn't have any inherent issues with the way that they use time in this, in this film. No, no. I thought, I thought the ways that they use time, I thought it was creative. I thought it was fun. Um, I thought, no, I thought it was, I thought it was very well done. Like I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else from the interview with Scott that was interesting. I mean, um, but nothing comes to the top of my head. There were several things. I would encourage the listeners to go listen to the interview with Scott because um, I think it's a fascinating, It's a fa he has a fascinating take on what he's doing. Um, and he gives out a few nuggets of information about like how he was told that, that he had an infinity stone in the movie um, and some of those types of things, right? The, the time stone. Um, and that was pretty cool to hear. So uh, highly recommend that Empire podcast if you can find it. I'm sure that's on their website somewhere. Well, any final thoughts, Sam? Um, no, that's all. Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I think we've I think we've hit this pretty hard. I think so. Yeah, so, I think yeah. so. Thank you so Thank much you for, so joining much me, for joining me, Sam. Hey, like I said, pleasure. Uh, hopefully I get to do it again in the future soon. It's good times. Well, that is it for today's podcast, and it was a long one. Special thanks to Sam Wellbaum for sticking through it and for joining me today in this deeper discussion about Doctor Strange. What do you think? Let us know. Write us an email at hi at reclamationsociety.org which is a new email address for us, hi at reclamationsociety.org, or check out our community on mz.com, which is a new, friendlier Reddit where we host our discussion board. Our email address and the link to our MZ group are both in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, and when you do, write us a review so that you're eligible to win free comics from the Reclamation Society. 
We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, so make sure you follow us and give us some feedback on what sci-fi, fantasy, or comic book story we should review next. That is it for today's show. As always, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. We will catch you on the next podcast.